And welcome to episode 126 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelby. Today on the podcast, it's part one of our Best of 2020 countdown, as we'll be recapping some of our outlier movies that appear on only one person's list for the best films of 2020. We'll be doing that with some special guests as well. But before we introduce them, Scott, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. Uh, it's uh... I don't even know what day it is anymore because they all blur together at this point after almost a year. But no, I'm doing well. I'm excited to uh, be doing this finally. We're doing it a little bit later than usual. Uh, didn't see all the movies I wanted to see for this list yet, but uh, that, that, that's how it goes when our, with our best list. That was the case last year, too, where my number one movie I watched after, uh, after we did this recording. And I will wonder if that'll be the case this year, but I guess only time will tell. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I am kind of feeling like my number one movie may still be to come out in uh, a month or two, uh, not to forecast anything, uh, because we will be talking about it. But, um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I'm of the same mind right now. But I will say, like, sort of as a general comment that, um, you know, at a certain, you know, we, we were pretty late into the year. And I was like, I don't know about this list. Like, I kept looking at my list like is this really going to be my top 10 list? Uh, just because I think we've been spoiled over the past few years um, with some really good years. Um, but uh, by the time we got to this point, uh, you know, looking at my top 10 and, and top 20 too, because we are going to recap our 11 through 20s as well. Um, I am very pleased with this list. I think it turned out to be a really good year. Um, and I'm excited to talk about a lot of these movies because we didn't necessarily get a chance to talk about some of them, give four reviews to them on the podcast. Instead, we were doing random Netflix movies of the week for quite a while. Um, and so that, you know, this will be our first chance to talk about some movies, uh, which will be good for the listeners, I think, because sometimes like last year, you know, when we get to like the end of the year and I've already talked about Little Women eight times, even though it had just come out like two weeks before we did our uh, best of 2020 show. It's like, OK, we know what you think. Get on. But, you know, we'll actually be talking about some movies for the first time. Well, but, it, anyway. was it even on your top 10 list last year, though, because you just watched it like two days before. It was we, my number one. It was? It, it, you did it put it number, number one? one? Okay. The top 10 was just little women spelled out individually by letter F. <laughs> number one is L, number two is I, and so on and so forth. There you go. He's already jumping in, one of our guests. Before Don't worry, I'll edit it out. Uh, well, we, we can go ahead and introduce him now um, since, he, since he jumped in there. Uh, you know him from uh, the movie trivia showdown. Uh, as well as uh, various podcast appearances. He's been on the Meaning of podcast. Uh, he's been on our very own Champs Lunch. Uh, Paul Yama is one of our great guests for Best of 2020 uh, today. How are you doing, Paul? I don't know if everyone necessarily knows me. I think you're jumping a little bit to conclusions there. I didn't but say I'm everyone. Ex- that's fair. I, you know, all, all six listeners. Thanks, thanks, you guys out there. But no, hey, it's five. Um, <laughs> I'm excited, no, because... I think this is a year that, you know, has sort of been tossed off as like, ah, we'll just talk this up as, you know, movies didn't really happen this year. We'll move on to the year after. But I think like, you know, when I look at my top 10 and top 20, it's pretty much just as strong as almost any other year, I think, for the last 10, 15 years. So I think like getting a chance to highlight that stuff um, and the stuff that kind of helped me, you know, through quarantine, a lot of this stuff was kind of a salve in this time where it was hard 
um, to get an escape. And I think that's what a lot of these movies were for me in different kinds of ways. Um, and I'm just pumped to be here, you know, making my debut officially on Some Like It, Scott. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. And to go off what you were saying, Paul, Scott asked me the question recently. We were talking about how, oh, you know, it's been a down year, kind of whatever. But, but then Scott asked the question of like, well, what didn't come out that you like were waiting to come out, um, you know, this this year that, you know, you think would have been on your list? Or obviously there's a number of big budget, you know, stuff like that that got the theater movies that got uh, pushed. But like in terms of what would have been on my list, you know, there's a couple of A24 movies like Zola didn't come out. A couple other things that like, I, you know, I was looking at prior uh, to the years like this, you know, is what I'm targeting for most anticipated, whatever. But for the most part, like a lot of stuff found found its way out, right? The the movies that I think were most likely to make our lists um, did all end up coming out. So in the end, even though, you know, it may feel like a down year because we weren't going to the theaters and seeing a lot of stuff, I think what you say is right. But um, Nine days. Our- that's, that's the one for me that I was bummed didn't come out this year. No, it's yeah. going out next year. It has a release. I think it has a release date already, but. No, doesn't have a release date. They just pushed it again. They pushed it again. Oof. Yeah. Um, we're going to introduce our other guest now. Uh, joining us, also a first-time guest on uh, Some Like It, Scott. Uh, you know him uh, from the Digesting Cinema podcast uh, over on the Feature Presentation Productions uh, companion podcast to the Feature Presentation Challenge, which everyone should do. Scott and I are doing it. Um, but uh, Aaron Jay is joining us as well on our year-end podcast. Aaron, how are you? Uh, it's good to be here. I've also been on Champs Lunch. I uh, discovered Adam, Adam Collins. If you remember, I predicted him, sorry, Paul, to win the uh, tournament. I said Adam Collins is going to run through it. He kind of did. You discovered him. <laughs> yeah, I discovered him. You know, I discovered Scott, a lot. Scott discovered him for real. In this I discovered A24. I discovered Adam Collins. Like, there's just a lot of things that, in ending explained videos, all things that uh, I've discovered. So, yeah, I'm glad to be here. Um I may not be as well-spoken as Paul, but um, I will speak from the heart on all of my movies. Um, the outlier you know, episode should just be called my episode, as all of my bottom <laughs> five is outliers. So great start to my top ten. I'm excited to be here uh, talking with you guys. Yeah, it is funny to see how that shakes out. Scott was pointing out to me the other night that we actually have... 13 movies in the outlier section and 13 in the consensus section. Uh, so it broke out evenly. And just as last year when we had our friends from Curly Nostalgia on, uh, there was no movie that appeared on all four lists. There were a couple that appeared on three lists, yeah. um, but no movie that appeared on all four lists. So. Yeah, I love this year in movies. Um, I really don't miss like huge blockbusters. A lot of my bottom five, two of which are movies that would have came out in the theaters that ended up getting shipped out on different streaming services. So like I did miss going to the theater because I'd like to see the movies in my top 10 in the theater. But at the same point, I like the smaller, more intimate stories anyways. And I think those got the light shined on them this year just by default. So that works for me. Yeah, I don't disagree. Um, so seems like we're all in agreement that this turned out to be a pretty good year in movies. Um, but before we talk about how good of a year it was, uh, we have to do our annual tradition of uh, picking our worst movies of 2020. Uh, so we're each going to have a pick for this. Um, Aaron, uh, we'll start with you. Do you have a uh, worst movie of 2020 that you want to you know, spend one or two minutes taking out your frustration on? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a few that I could pick. Um, I'm actually going to pick one that I did see in theaters before they closed down. Um, 
And I won't have too much to say about it because when I don't like movies, I don't like remembering much about them. So, um, but it's the remake of The Grudge. Uh, this <sighs> shit was absolute. Yeah, people forgot this came out this year. It just feels like it's been like 10 Poor years. Poor John Cho. I mean, so yeah. One John Cho movie we get this year is The Grudge. <laughs> yeah, you hate to see it. And this, uh, I don't know who Nicholas Pesky is, but I'm not going to be looking for a lot of his movies coming out. Yeah, it was just really hard to get through this one. And uh, I saw it in theaters, and like I give a lot of movies really high praise, and this movie did get a half star for me. So congratulations. This movie is pretty good. Piercing from 2018 is like a really interesting like Italian giallo genre thing, and then this happens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, so, is, so yeah, I mean, maybe I'll check that out. I mean, and so, but either way, I mean, it was just like, I, I, I got behind it partially because I saw Sam Raimi produced it. So I was like, oh, maybe it will, you know, have a little, but Sam Raimi in the last 15 to 20 years is not Sam Raimi anyways. So like, yeah, this was rough. Hey, he did produce Crawl, which was great. Um, yeah, Crawl, I, was, I, Crawl was fine. Crawl was uh, fine. We won't, we're not going back to best of 2019. Uh, Scott, how about your worst movie of 2020? Yeah, an- another movie that came out in January... I, I watched it on a plane um, back when, you know, traveling was a thing. And I really thought that this movie, like, might be good. Uh, I mean, Ben Affleck and Anne Hathaway were in it. And, like, it, there was no reason why it should be so absolutely terrible. Uh, but it was. And it's a Netflix film. It's called The Last Thing He Wanted. And I don't think I've watched a, a more incoherent movie in my life. Like, I, honestly, half the time, I had no idea what was going on in the, in the movie. Honestly, I couldn't tell you now what the film was really even about. Um, I mean, I can tell, like, historical context-wise, I could tell you, because it is set sort of like historical fiction type kind of movie. But just just atrocious, like, really, really bad. The storytelling doesn't make any sense. The performances are, like, very shruggy, whatever. And the it has a twist ending, but I couldn't have cared less uh, by then. And I'm pretty sure I didn't fall asleep in the movie, but maybe I did, and maybe that's why none of it makes sense. But it was a really bad film. I guess it was the last thing uh, you wanted, huh? I did. I made that joke uh, no, in my that, Letterboxd. That, you, that, me, and everybody else on Letterboxd made that joke in their review. That movie's such a curio because it's D. Reese coming off of Budbound, which, like, by all accounts, is a pretty celebrated film. It's, like, adapted from a Joan Didion novel who's, like, I think one of the better writers of, like, the last, I don't know, 35 years. So it's really strange that that plus the cast, it all came together to just make an absolute mess. And you kind of tell because I think it premiered at Sundance and then it was dumped onto Netflix, like, a week later. And it was just like, that is not a show of confidence by these people. The fact that they um, kind of bailed on it so early. And yeah, it's uh, uh, it was one that I was thinking about saying for my worst of the year as well. So I'm right there with you. I didn't see this one, fortunately enough. Um, but yeah, I, I figured that's what Scott was going to pick because I remember him talking about it when he saw it. Um, Paul requested to go last. So I will uh, jump in with my uh, worst movie of the year. Um which and, and you know it's it's weird because the last two years I feel like I've had like go to absolute picks uh, with Black Christmas and then Vice the year before that uh, I think were just atrocious uh, movies. But uh, even though even though the movies that we watched this year were like a little bit below you know standard, like for for that period of the year in the middle of the year, you know, a lot of stuff we were watching was below standard. I think it was just a lot of like mediocre, like two star movies and not necessarily like offensively bad movies like uh, those two that I said. But um, the movie that I'm going to pick is one that the reason I'm picking it is not only because it was bad, but also it was planned to come out in theaters. Um, 
before coronavirus hit and then they dumped it to Netflix. And I think it is indicative of everything that is wrong with mainstream studio comedies right now, uh, which is that they're not funny. And that is The Lovebirds uh, with Kumail Nanjiani and Issa Rae, um, directed by, uh, I believe, Michael Showalter, who did The Big Sick as well, um, which this movie was just a disaster. Again, I, I watching this, I could not believe that this, they had planned to put this out in theaters. But also at the same time, I could kind of believe it because I feel like this just kind of has uh, the stale humor that I have come to expect from studio comedies. It's not my genre, uh, particularly not in recent years. Um, and despite, I think, the likability of the two stars, um, comedy is not going to go very far when it doesn't have a single laugh in it. And it also recycles the plot from like Game Night and Date Night and several other um, recent comedies that I find to be more successful. So um this one was was a complete stinker and uh, and felt like the right one for me to pick here because, you know, I could have picked a random Netflix movie, but like Love Wedding Repeat or whatever, for example, was awful. But like that's just a Netflix rom-com or whatever. Like you, I didn't expect anything from that. This movie was like, oh, hey, well, it was actually going to come out in theaters. It's got two pretty like likable stars. Didn't deliver yeah. Uh, I think between this and uh between this and Stuber, it shows that Kumail should not work with directors named Michael coming off like a big rom-com hit. <laughs> um and I don't know, I didn't think this was like offensively bad necessarily. It has like I didn't a, either, a kind of a, a kind of amazing eyes wide shut like homage at the end I that was it. like kind of incredible that they put that in this movie. Um it was like one of the most forgettable movies though for sure. I think despite like you said, like I really like the two leads, but it was just like came and went like nobody's business. Yeah. yeah, I mean the, I funny, the funny part about that is that even before the pandemic even happened, there was like a ton of rumors around the movie being sold to Netflix. Like even before Paramount wasn't going to be able to distribute it, and that's why like it only took like two weeks into the pandemic and Paramount had gotten rid of this film. So I should probably tell you all you need to know. All right, Paul, your worst movie of 2020. Yeah, I think there's a couple of movies that are like really really bad, but I think this one kind of stands out just because um, this person needs to be put in check. Um, Someone take away Ryan Murphy's blank check that he somehow has with everything. Uh, the prom is really, really, really bad. Uh, I think James Corden's pretty unwatchable in pretty much anything that he appears in, including his own show. Um, and I think this is especially like a highlight of what doesn't work about him. Uh, Nicole Kidman is like, okay. And she's at least trying. I gave her a little bit of credit, but like, this is just such a misfire. The music is so poorly executed. Like it's so kind of regressive when it had a chance to be transgressive by all accounts of the stage production and everything. And it's really just a mess. And again, Ryan Murphy has made, I don't know, one or two good projects in his, I think career. Um, you know, again, he's a fellow IU alum, so I'd love to support the guy, but um, the stuff he does is just oof, total misses for me. And this is just another sort of in the long list. And, you know, maybe that leads that, you know, leads to me disliking it even more, but I just thought this was such a, mess and i couldn't believe people were like charmed by this i was yeah i I didn't watch it either but uh it was on my watch list for a while and there was there's a couple movies like this although this is probably like the worst of them this year that i just like open it up i'm like hmm, maybe i'll watch this tonight and then i see the runtime and i'm like how on earth is this movie this long it was like two hours and 20 minutes wasn't it it was like so long it felt like five hours but yeah i think it was like two hours it was a little a little under the kissing booth two runtime but it it did clock in i think at over two god Oh my god. You didn't watch this one either, Aaron? No. I had a worse Netflix movie that I really wanted to mention as my worst. Can I mention one more? It is a Netflix yeah, movie. Say, it, say, it, say its name. Yeah. It's 365 Days. 
I don't know if anybody saw this one, but uh, you watch that? is that that like Fifty Shades of Grey? Like I had, so I watched it the day it was released on Netflix. I didn't look up anything about it, and it looked kind of good from like the little preview on Netflix, where they like it looked like it was like well shot, had a nice vista shot over like a beach and like some like you know water and a sun setting and rising with a character setting, and then, so I watched this and. Like, I don't usually get offended by movies, but, like, what this movie is, like, portraying is basically, like, you can, like, force somebody to love you for a lack of a better term. And if you force them to love you for a long enough time, they'll eventually actually love you. This is the ending explained right here. This is the ending explained video. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, yeah, stay tuned to my YouTube channel for the ending explained on 360. He has one video per day for the whole year to explain it when yeah. aspect of this movie. <laughs> yeah. In 2020, I really got into, you know, four okay, yeah, this, is the worst thing. this is just by far the worst thing Netflix had this year. So uh, I, I, I'm sure prom was worse, but, or bad, but this is worse. And it's just like, uh, yeah, I um, didn't know what it was till afterwards. I, I go into movies blind, and uh, this is definitely one of those situations where I'd advise. I think not. it's hard to ignore the poster for that one, though. You know, like I feel like you can't go in totally blind looking at the the, the naked body. Just saw it was trending on Netflix once in a while. Netflix what? had a movie trending that was good this year, unlike most years with Netflix. But this year, once in a while, like. A movie with trending that was good, so I was like, maybe this is it. It wasn't. I'll, I'll let you know in a secret about the Netflix trending thing. Is that it's, it's protect probably just Netflix, man. Protect Netflix. They put it's probably just them uh, pushing movies more to you that they want you to watch. <laughs> well, they got all right. Well, enough about the bad. Let's get to the real reason we're here for the best of 2020, and we're going to start with our 20s through 11s. Uh, Aaron, we're going to go to you first. Uh, run through your uh, the movies that just missed your uh, top 10 list for us. Yeah, so we're not really going into details, just going through, just going through like list styles. So yeah, yeah you can say one or two sentences. If yep. Yeah. So number twenty for me was Tenet, which I'm very very happy with it being that high for me. I'm not a Christopher Nolan fan, uh, and this is one of my favorite Christopher Nolan movies actually. So I know I'm in the minority there, but uh, uh, for that. <laughs> yeah, the ending explained uh, videos on this Chef's Kiss, so. You know, got to put it in my top twenty. Wait, that's why we brought you on. You're gonna, you're gonna end and explain this, this movie later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hold on, I gotta refresh myself. I gotta watch a few. Um, Nineteen for me was uh, the Borat sequel, um, whatever Borat subsequent movie film. Uh, I really just enjoyed this uh, quite a bit. I live in Washington D.C. and uh, you know, it, it worked for me. I don't care if it was very clear who it was pandering to. I am who it was pandering to. So. Give it to me. Um, finally, talk some A24 so I can breathe. Uh, on the Rocks, uh, I know a lot of people weren't crazy about this. I actually found this to be quite good. And, uh, you know, a lot of people seem to ha uh, have reviews about this movie before seeing the movie because they're like, oh, it's like Bill Murray with a younger woman, but it's his daughter. So, I mean, I think that's okay here. Um, <laughs> 17 was Freaky, which I didn't know about until it was getting released. And I absolutely loved it. Body swap or it works for me and Vince Vaughn. I'm a Vince Vaughn fan. Uh, my Rainey's Black Bottom at 16 for me. Uh, good Netflix. Good job. Uh, Soul at number 15. Um, I like Pixar quite a bit. Um, I've realized this year after going back and revisiting a lot of the movies. So I didn't. And so it worked for me. Um, as I've gotten a little further away from it, I've forgotten it quite a bit. But in the moment, I did 
like it quite a bit. So I'm going to put it at 15. 14 is the half of it from Netflix. Um, I really like this movie quite a bit. Um, this was another example of me just kind of scrolling through Netflix. And I just saw this and decided to give it a shot and it had Vince Vendor references in it. So I had to put it in my top 20 because that, you know, it's just wonderful to see in like a movie that you went, it just had a lot of really sweet moments and uh, good representation to me. Um, 13 is small axes, red, white, and blue. Um, I thought John Boyega was absolutely amazing in this movie. Um, the entire small axe series, if it was one movie would have been my number one of the year, but separating them had to spread it out a little bit, but this is not the only small axe I have, uh, 12 big time adolescence. I like, uh, Pete Davidson a lot this year. Um, I thought he really worked in both of his movies. Um, and yeah, this is one that I feel didn't get any attention. It just kind of was released and I think is the bolder of the two between that and King of Staten Island, honestly. But um, yeah, I just thought it really worked and I responded quite a bit to Pete Davidson's character so far in his career. So I know a lot of people wear thin, but for me, I maybe just recognize a lot of those tendencies and they don't wear thin because I probably have them myself. And then 11, another Netflix, and that was Hulu, I believe, was big time adolescence. And uh, at 11, of course, no other choice for my 11 than this movie, which is The Five Bloods, which I was calling The Blood Five for the longest time when it first came out, like a very standard white boy talking about Spike Lee. But I'm a huge Spike Lee fan. This has I, two or three of the better performances of the year, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, I mean, this was... Again, Netflix had a really strong year for me, um, and this is one of those examples. So, Yeah, some good picks in there, some stuff we might hear uh, about a little bit later, um, and some stuff I haven't seen yet. So um, great to hear uh, your 20 through 11. Let's go to Paul now. Paul, uh, your 20 through 11. Yes, yeah, so my number 20 is uh, Miranda July's Kajillionaire. Um, this was, you know, kind of came a little bit out of nowhere for me. I hadn't seen any of her previous movies and I know that she's kind of known for her like quirk. And I love the way that Gina Rodriguez's character in this kind of confronts that quirk. Um, and there's specifically, there's a moment where she talks about how most happiness comes from dumb things. And I found that to be a really profound sentiment. Um, and I just thought it was a wonderful movie. That's like, you know, acted in a way that makes you uncomfortable, but that's sort of the point. You know, these people are, you know, not the best people in the world for a reason. Uh, my number 19 is Mank because Mank, um, to me, one of, you know, one of those movies that I could have listened to as a podcast and I uh, would have been there thoroughly entertained by it. I think it's like, you know, kind of get, you know, mixed reviews, but I really, really was taken by it. And I think that the argument scene at the birthday party is like one of the best things Fincher's ever done. Uh, but number 18 is a documentary called Feels Good Man, which is about the creation of the Pepe the Frog meme and how it evolved into this symbol um, for the far right. I think it's like one of the defining films of the Trump era. Um, and I think it captures the way that the Internet can spiral down and, and change people's lives and change symbols and images and ideas. And I think it's like really worth checking out. It's a big recommendation for me. Uh, my 17th soul, I think maybe the best film music of 2020, certainly up there, I think. Um, and I think visually is just absolutely stunning. Um, there are some parts of it I don't love. I, just the Tina Fey of it, I think, sort of is what kept it in the teens for me and not in the top 10. But I found it really moving, and I thought it was like a beautiful um, set of ideas that I think maybe it, it does the Pixar thing where it gets a little too cute with the world building sometimes. 
Um, my number 15 is Garrett Bradley's Time, which is, a, again, a documentary I just found absolutely heartbreaking and beautiful and one of the best editing jobs of the year, I think, putting this footage together in this way is what made it really great. My next one is Sound of Metal, which um, I just remember seeing kind of on a lark early on at one of the digital film festivals, and I was really, really moved moved by it. I think Paul Racy's performance, like I know Riz Ahmed is getting a lot of the, the talk, but I think Paul Racy is really extraordinary in this movie. Um, my friend number 14 is Another Round, which I think has one of my favorite endings of the year. I think Mads Mikkelsen's remarkable. I love the way that Thomas Vinterberg uses him as a performer and allows him to like show these colors that American films, frankly, just don't let him bring out. And I think that's one of the best parts about their partnership. And I love that it's it's got that sweet with the sour, um, you know, the melancholy with the sort of the gentleness. Um, number 13 is Wolfwalkers. Um, you know, this is a, a studio that um, is really making bold movements, I think, using this sort of European uh, mythology. Um, and I, I love um, the voice performances in this. I think the animation's gorgeous. Um, the music's wonderful. It's just top to bottom, like just a really moving and, and really well-made animated film that I was really taken by. Um, my number 12 is The Assistant. Um, Julie Garner in this might be my performance of the year. I think it's like, it's like finding horror in the mundane and it's about so many things that are not done and not said that make this movie so great. And I think it's all the little touches. I think Kitty Green's direction is really terrific. And um, yeah, there's such an amazing performance. There's, you know, a scene with an HR department that I think really stuck with me. Um, and then finally, my number 11 is is a movie that I think I might end up watching maybe more than almost anything um, from 2020. And that's Palm Springs. I think this is a big salve for me in 2020. Um, and a movie I could just go back to, I think, at almost any time. I love Andy Samberg. And I think Kristen Malati really gets a chance to shine. It's a nice little slight tweak on the sort of Groundhog Day genre without, you know, necessarily reinventing the wheel. But I think the way that it's executed is just really pleasant and nice. And it's a movie that I think came out at a really good time. I think it might not have made as much of an impact if this came out in a different year, but um, yeah, really terrific movie. Yeah. Palm Springs is one of those. I was talking about it with Scott the other day. I don't know what it is, but like, I, I really enjoyed it when I, when it first came out and I watched it and I was like, Oh, that'll definitely be in my top 20 at the very least didn't make it and we're not going to be talking about it in the consensus picks or outliers of this the show today um and i don't think that's a knock on the movie or anything like i i, I would really rewatched it. it if you would feel differently if it would I, kind of go back up for you. i mean that's how i feel about a lot of these uh, I, yeah. I think um that's that's just the way it goes but yeah that's that's one that just kind of gradually slipped down my list until i was actually kind of surprised where it ended up but yeah it's a great movie and uh, definitely some movies uh, on your list as well that we're going to be talking about a little later and also maybe during the 11 through 20, maybe in Scott's 11 through 20 right now. Yeah, Palm Springs will be one of those in a second. Uh, absolutely. It, didn't, it definitely made my top 20 because it was very pleasant. But to start with my number 20, uh, you know, I, I did manage to watch all the small axe movies. And I think, you know, three, maybe even four of them are just like really, they're really, really good. Um, so it was tough to find a place for all of them when we're only talking about 20 movies, but I did manage to shove in uh, Red, White, and Blue and at my number 20. And, you know, it's, it's a film <clears throat> that I think just with better, you know, I think all five of these movies with, with a better marketing cycle probably would have made a stronger impact just in terms of national. Like, I still don't feel like that many people have watched these movies. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe some people have watched Mangrove, you know, maybe some people have watched Lover's Rock, but I think that it's a real shame that more people haven't watched, you know, all five of them. And I think Red, White, and Blue of those other three that I think have fallen a little bit further down the list for people. I mean, literally because they're in the episode order on Amazon, but uh, is a really, really, really good, strong film. It ended a bit quickly, but I still really enjoyed it. 
Uh, I think that was the case for several of the uh, several of the small X movies that they ended really quickly. But that was my number twenty. My number nineteen is Run, which is Anish Shiganti's sophomore film. Uh, I mean, longtime listeners of the podcast will know how much I love searching. Uh, Scott, uh, others got here, love searching as well, and really was really excited for this film to come out. And although I don't think it from start to finish is nearly as good as searching is, I still think that you see the threads and like the filmmaking ability of Anish Shiganti and the, his ability to inspire tension in the stories he's telling is remarkable uh, from certain scenes. I mean, and then I, I think that probably not talked about enough in my opinion is just sort of the rooftop sequence uh, with the main character. Uh, not to give anything else away, but uh, sort of the hook of this one is that, you know, she has a lot of things wrong with her. One of them is that she can't walk. She's uh, paralyzed from the waist down and she goes out on a roof and climbs across a roof, which is pretty impressive. Pretty physical performance from uh, its star, whose name is slipping my mind right now. Kira Allen. Kira Allen, that's right. Yeah, uh, number 18, Palm Springs. Uh, retweet what Paul said about it. It's really a lovely film. I was not expecting to have as much fun with it as I did. I think that's probably the best way I can describe it. Like I was expecting to like it. It got really strong reviews. I mean, it was, you know, one of the top sells coming out of, was it Sundance? Yeah, it was Sundance. The top sell ever, I think, by one, was by, one cent, by like a few cents. Yeah. By a few cents. That's, I remember that story. Yeah, uh, Hulu acquiring it. I guess it's technically Disney acquiring it, but um, Hulu acquiring it and putting it out and uh, really, really strong film. Or was it? Yeah, no, it was, yeah. Um, really, I'm doing a great start here. Uh, 17 is Onward, sort of the, the Pixar film we haven't talked about yet from this year. I'm curious to see if it comes up later on in the episode. I don't think that it, it, it might. I don't know. Um, uh, but a really good, really good film. I, I watched the trailers for this and wasn't quite sure if I was going to like it. I'm not always into this sort of like almost more childish looking type fantasy feel that you get with like very, you know, rainbow colored unicorn type stuff that you even get in the trailer. But when I actually, you know, sat down and watched the film, it was one of the last movies that I watched in theaters. Uh, when I got to sit down and watch this film, and I was really taken with this sort of very heartfelt story about, you know, what it might mean um, to like not have had the time that you think you deserved, you know, with your with your family, especially specifically with your father. And then this adventure that they go on is really fun. I really enjoyed the adventure element of this movie. It felt very, although although very kid friendly, but still like uh, you know, a kid friendly version of an adventure movie like a Tomb Raider or an Indiana Jones. Honestly, it was a very fun adventure um, that they get to go on. Number sixteen is Shit House. A really, really funny, uh, heartfelt comedy slash, you know, I guess it, I guess technically it's a romantic comedy movie that I thought was like if it if it's like ninety minutes ish or hundred minutes, I thought it was really good for like ninety of ninety of those hundred minutes. And then I think the ending takes it down a little bit, which is probably what kept it coming from being in my you know top you know top fifteen or top ten even because it was very close to to getting there. Um, and then just the last few minutes, I think it sort of just couldn't help itself a little bit um, with with its ending. Number fifteen is Baccarat. I just recently caught this one, uh, wacky film, really, really wacky film, but really also like oddly enjoyable. Um, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I wouldn't say that I loved it, but I had a better time with it than I expected after, you know, 30 or 45 minutes into the movie. It's pacing just seems like really, really off and, or not necessarily off, but the pacing just seems to change dramatically about halfway through the movie, um, which I found a little bit off-putting. But uh, really, really great film, Brazilian film. I'd recommend it if anyone's looking for a different type of watch uh, than you might normally get. Number 14 is Possessor, which is you know not usually my genre. I'll say that, Scott knows that very well. Not usually my genre, but I think there is something that this film offers that's more than just, you know, it's sort of gory horror type fare uh, that you might get from the trailer or reading a you know, brief high level plot, you know, primer for the movie. 
Uh, very interesting. I looking forward to rewatching this to see if I get something more out of it uh, than I than I could on the first time, just from some of the shock value of some of the some of the story elements of this one. So really good film, and I could see that potentially even going up over time on my list. Number thirteen, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Um, I'm not sure if we'll talk about it more, but I mean Chadwick Boseman's absolutely electric in this movie. Viola Davis is is amazing as well. Uh, Coleman Domingo. I mean, good on the cast list is a really strong ensemble performance. I don't know why it became so like in vogue to like comment about how plays were adapted to a film form or like, oh my God, their plays is holding them back because I think it's totally fine to do that personally. And I think the actors really put on a show, to be honest, um, like not a perfect film, but one that's really enjoyable. And it is going to be Chadwick Boseman's last film. And it's certainly a worthwhile performance for that. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, number 12 is The Invisible Man. The first of the two Elizabeth Moss movies I'm about to talk about. Uh, really, really good film. I was looking forward to this, not because I'm like super into like, you know, the Universal Monsters type movies, but because I'm really into this whole what feels like this kind of like new wave horror genre of like burying something like Me Too or some other like really relevant cultural or sociopolitical theme into a horror movie and then like really kind of diving into it a little bit. I don't think it does it you know, full justice necessarily, but Lee Whannell does a really good job, I think, adding in that sort of element of, you know, relationship related trauma into a story about, you know, what are you really afraid of, things like that. Um, and yeah, like the ending is a lot of fun. Some people complain about sort of the tonal shift of the movie to almost like an action movie in the second half or the last third of the film, which I think is like fair to some extent, but I also really enjoyed it. I didn't see Upgrade, which I heard people got like a lot of strong vibes. Uh, Very fun. Very fun. From yeah. the last third of the movie. Yeah, no, I should watch it. It's been on my backlog for a while. Um, but I want to check that out. And I want to check out, I think they, uh, Lee Whannell's already announced it to be doing, I'm forgetting what he's announced. I feel like it's another one of these like. Wolfman. Is it Wolfman? Wolfman okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. And then my number 11 is that, you know, the other Elizabeth Moss movie, if we're, if we're calling it that, Shirley, which uh, was sort of a film that felt like it got dropped on Hulu and Honestly, like no one talked about it, right? And I think this movie just sort of like got dumped and disappeared, which I don't really understand because it's a really, really good movie. It's probably the better of the two Elizabeth Moss performances, in my opinion. And as weird, I, I can kind of understand in some ways, like why this might have got like sort of silently offloaded because it is a, a little bit of a qu like quieter and, you know, maybe less eye-catchy type movie. But the performances are really strong, in my opinion. I think both Elizabeth Moss and Odessa Young are really good in this. And Michael Stuhlbar gives a really strong supporting performance for me, which like, I'm not surprised no one's talking about it, but I thought it was really, really good. And I'd recommend it. It's it's a psychological, I wouldn't call it a horror movie, but it's a definitely a more psychological uh, thriller type movie. Light on the thrills maybe, but uh, good exploration, good character development and really strong performances. Yeah. Uh... Some some good picks there, Scott. A lot of my uh, thunder has been stolen here before I get into my uh, twenty through eleven. But uh, no, I'm I'm happy to you know give some extra love to some of these. I do want to say before I do my twenty through eleven, uh, there is a movie that I am not counting, which uh, if it were to be counted, would probably be at the lowest my number two, uh, and that is David Byrne's American Utopia, um, the Spike Lee, uh, you know filmed version of David Byrne's um, Broadway uh, show, American Utopia, uh, that was on HBO Max. Um, I'm not counting- Can I add Hamilton to my list? Well, that's the thing. That is why I'm not, that is literally why I'm not counting it because if I counted David Byrne's American Utopia, which a lot of critics have, um, 
I have I have noticed a lot of critics are putting this on their list. Then I would have had to count Hamilton as well, and that just doesn't. Seem it's right. your list. You can count and not yeah, count. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I uh, I'm a lawyer, so I have to have infallible logic. Uh, you know, throughout my entire list. But uh, David Burns' American Utopia is incredible, and one of the maybe like brought me more joy than anything in 2020 in a really you know crappy year. Um, and I could not recommend it highly enough. Uh, you know, whether you are a fan of David Byrne and talking heads or not, um, like you're, you're going to get something out of this, um, incredible stage show, the music, his personality, the diversity that is represented on the stage. Uh, it was, it's, it's all incredible. Um, but anyway, so that's my precursor. Um, David Byrne's American Utopia. Yeah. first movie in <laughs> getting, yeah, I mean, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, all right, my 20, Borat subsequent movie film. Uh, Aaron mentioned it. Uh, I think this is a step up on the original. It had a more focused critique of misogyny uh, in American society. And, uh, you know, that a lot of that is reason for that is because of the great addition of Maria Bakalova as Tutar, um, who I think was a real game changer in this movie. Number 19, One Night in Miami by Regina King. Um, really great stage adaptation. Um, I think Kingsley Benadir and Leslie Odom Jr. are the standouts here in this cast, um, along with uh, the incredible music moment to finish this movie. That's one of the scenes of the year. Um, speaking of incredible music moments, Lover's Rock is my number 18. Uh, euphoric, atmospheric, uh, and, you know, just those uh, needle drops are, you know, again, some of the highest highs you'll feel in 2020. I think Steve McQueen does an incredible job of immersing you in this party scene. Uh, it was my second favorite of the... Uh, the three, I will say, I've only managed to see the first three uh, of Small X so far, but um, I did really enjoy this one. Uh, 17, I'm Your Woman by Julia Hart. Um, this was a really interesting character study about these two um, women who are sort of left behind by their criminal husbands. Um, a, a Sort of a more contemplative uh, look at some of the issues that a film like Widows may be explored. Um, and I think Rachel Brosnahan and Marcia Stephanie Blake, who are the two um, actresses here, are excellent. Um, Onward is my number 16. I, you know, I couldn't agree with Scott Moore that um, the trailers for this movie looked awful. And then the movie itself was incredibly wonderful. And um, as someone who I have a close relationship with my brother, I think that movies about brothers, um, you know, a, a bond between brothers like this movie is are always going to hit me deeper emotionally. And this movie definitely uh, did that. Um, the Invisible Man is my number 15. I, I think this is one that could go up with our rewatch it because honestly, thinking about it in relation to another sort of Me Too-ish movie that we're going to be talking about a little bit later, um, how much better I think this did some of the some of the things that that movie was going for, uh, you know, make me appreciate it more. Um, and so I, I really think this is an incredibly smart um, film, uh, you know, about living with abuse. Um, number 14, First Cow by Kelly Reichert. Um, you know, this movie that is very small and quiet, but also feels it's like this really epic tale of the, these two guys in like the American West um, trying to, to make their way by selling baked goods, basically. Um, and John Magaro and Orion Lee are, you know, two guys you will ne have never heard of probably, but they're doing really great work here. Um, and, you know, Kelly Reichert, she has her brand of cinema. That's not for everyone, but, uh, you know, this is one of the peak examples of it. Uh, unshockingly, uh, my girlfriend asked me if it was Shia LaBeouf when we were watching that movie together. <laughs> Ooh. 
So glad it's done. I can see that. I so can see that. Oh, they yeah, look so Because we, we, we also watched Pieces of a Woman, like, the week after that. And I'm like, no, that's shy. That's shy. Yeah, and then we she's like, is that John Magaro? That really looks like John <laughs> I, I wish he'd done that. I we can appreciate that. it without reservation. Uh, first cow, that is. Uh, Mangrove is my number 13. This is my favorite small axe film. Uh, it's a courtroom drama, so maybe you'd expect that. Uh, but it's also a really sort of, uh, you know, immersive. Again, it has some of the same sort of euphoric vibes that Lovers Rock. Um, has in that first hour when it's really sort of acclimating you to these people and this specific place, the mangrove. Um, and there's a great ensemble in this. Uh, Malachi Kirby and Sean Parks, I think, are the two people that I would shout out uh, from this cast. It's it's a you know one of the must watches I think uh, of the year. Surely one of the best made movies of the year in my opinion by Josephine Decker. Um, you know I agree with what Scott said. It's it's really dark and it's not a conventional biopic at all, but had some of the most exciting um, moments of the year for me. And I think just like from a craftsmanship standpoint, screenplay, performances, direction, um, it's, you know, all, all excellent and awards worthy. And then finally, Paul mentioned this movie, but The Assistant is, I think, the best Me Too movie this year. Um, I, I, you know, not everyone is going to go for the approach that Kitty Green chooses, the mundane approach, like Paul mentioned. Um, but I think it, it works incredibly well. It's, you know, like, agenda-free filmmaking almost. He's like, I'm just going to set the camera down. We're going to film what this would actually be like. Um, and yeah, Julia Garner. I mean, not a whole lot that she says in this movie by design, um, but that, you know, doesn't take anything away from, I think, an incredibly powerful performance that probably won't be recognized in awards season, but definitely deserves to be. So I don't know how you can call it agenda-free filmmaking, but I, I don't disagree with the film's agenda. Well, I mean, she she's setting down the camera and saying, we're going to film, uh, you know, a, a day in the, the life of this person. And, um, you know, that just the events that happened to her. Yes, there is a, a position that comes out of that that you should be taking. But I don't think she comes in with the mindset of, um, you know, we're going to uh, we're going to I'm going to preach, I guess, is what I'm saying. It's, it's not a preachy film. Um, As someone I think who the, worked at production companies, this is uh, not necessarily abnormal. Um for the day to day and all that kind of stuff of the way that those goings on happen. So, yeah, yeah, the banality of her approach works really well. But yeah, the assistant, my number eleven. Um, I was reading an interesting interview with uh, with Elizabeth Moss. Just to go back to Shirley for a second, the other day, where she like actually had a neck injury when they were filming Shirley. Like, it's not like she she was talking about like method acting, like what her style of acting <laughs> is, because she apparently is like very anti method acting, which I didn't know people were like actually anti that, but I guess she just really doesn't like it. And she was like, no, oh, Justin Hoffman famously, there's a whole thing about how he's like. Um, there was this whole confrontation on set where he was like, I, I, don't, I don't remember if it was him, but they're like, oh, have you tried acting? You know, instead of like this getting into character thing. <laughs> and Daniel Day-Lewis were like throwing punches at each other or something. Um, All right. Uh, let's get into our top 10 list now. And, you know, for this part one, as I mentioned, we are going to be doing The Outliers. So that is the movie that movies that appeared on uh, only one person's list with the exception of one movie, which is actually my number one. Uh, and we're going to be talking about that in the next episode because it's my number one, but it also does happen to be an outlier, but um, we'll get to that in due time. But for now, we're going to start with Aaron uh, and his number 10 pick, uh, which Scott mentioned in his uh, 11 through 20 range, Baccarat. Tell us more about this one. Aaron. Uh, yeah. So um, Baccarat is my pick. Um, I'm going to, try to i will try to say names but some will be butchered but basically this film is just it really is wild to me um i watched it on the criterion channel which is 
a channel I spent a lot of time on this year watching movies not from 2020 or 2019. This was listed as, but it's a 2020 movie. Um, but yeah, I I was surprised that it like had won like the acclaimed awards it had won just because like when I watched it, it was like a really exciting movie in the second half, especially the first half is a really slow build that really builds the the world it's in. That's unlike kind of any like world I was expecting going into it. Like the way it's kind of set up, it just seems like a Brazilian small village type of movie that like I've kind of seen before. So I was like getting ready for that. But then there's just like a lot of like weird, like elements in it that are very surreal. And like, just like, there's like kind of UFO imagery in it at points. There's commentary on Brazilian government, which I don't really understand as I have no familiarity with like kind of the issues that are being addressed in that way. So I think in some ways, maybe I'm missing some real world elements of it, but also it's like, a movie that feels like it could be happening now for as bizarre as it is with how resources are being hoarded, you know, Nestle with like water at this point saying water's like a, not a, it's like a privilege, not a right or something. And like trying to buy like actual, so it's like, it's basically about a powerful organization holding resources over a group of people. And then, um, you know, it's just funny because like a lot of people are like upset about how Americans are portrayed in the movie and it's just like, this is how Americans have been portraying foreign countries as terrorists and enemies in movies throughout time. So it's just like, it's being turned on them. And it's like, they're just like violent, sex obsessed. And like, you know, it's like, there's like comedic points at points. And, you know, it's just like, it's a crazy movie uh, that I don't feel like there's enough of at this point. And it's like really risky filmmaking and uh, good performances and uh yeah it, it was a lot of fun once it gets going but i like the slow build up myself uh kelly reichert's one of my favorite directors so it's like you know in a lot of movies on my list some of the criticism is they're slow and the way that starts at first 30 minutes it's a little bit maybe challenging at first but on a rewatch this movie is even more fun so i this is one i revisited that if i could update my list it would move up honestly but it's like I love Westerns. It's like a Western element. Joe Dorosky is one of my favorite directors of all time. And I feel this is plucked from his brain in a lot of ways. And then a little more focused, of course. But yeah, it's just great time. I recommend it to anybody, honestly. Yeah, I haven't gotten to see this one yet. But uh, the stuff that people say about it makes me think that I will like it. Paul, I know you've seen this one. Yeah, this is like the most bug nuts thing that I saw, I think, in 2020. Um, it really reminds me of Kim Ji-woon, The Good, The Bad, and The Weird um, from like the late 2000s of like this weird Western kind of genre. And I love that it's this mashup of different ideas and styles. Um, Udo Kier, who's like one of Lars von Trier's kind of regular guys, is in this. And I think he's he's really good. And um, I think the same thing can be said for Sonia Braga, who's giving this really strange performance, I think, that's... Um, really out there, but I really appreciate what she's doing. But to me, yeah, it's just a collision of different genres and ideas. And this almost feels like um, sort of in the John Carpenter lineage of like making real ideas happen through genre filmmaking. And that's something I really appreciated about it is the scale and scope and stuff is really impressive. Yeah. And the funny thing about the Carpenter aspects for sure is another thing I picked up is I believe the name of the school is something Carpenter. So it's definitely an homage right in the name of the school in the movies. So like, but yeah, 
Sophia brought, I didn't even recognize her on the first watch till I like looked up. I was like, Oh my God, it's, I was just it's such a unusual performance. And like, I like, I just like how it, there's a lot of people in this movie who aren't typically focused on as stars of a movie. I feel like, and as characters who are to be focused on, it's not like traditional quote unquote, just one type of person in the movie. So. It was just like out of time, which is cool. One of the cool parts about it is I could, you know, you could theoretically have thought, think, thought of this as set in so many different time periods, and it would basically be the same movie, except yeah. for the drones. Well, I, mean, I was trying not to give too much away, but yeah, I was, you know, but uh, either way, best going in without knowing too much about the movie. Yeah, I my my review definitely said going as blind as possible, and uh, that's how I feel for most. Uh, so yeah, it's Sonia, not Sophia. My bad, um, but. Uh, yeah, uh, Sonia Braga. Uh, but either way, just I really recommend this movie to people who maybe um, have a little more patience because the first half is. is I don't think it's that slow, though. I really don't think it's that slow. Maybe if anything, I, think, I think it slows down in the second half. I mean, that was just my personal. Uh, yeah. I thought. I mean, I thought it, it was quite explosive. But either way, um, I, I've heard that as a criticism. But yeah, I love wild, weird movies. Like the weirder, the better, and. If, if anything else, I don't think you're going to forget seeing this movie. You may not like it. You may be like, wow, that wasn't for me. But like, I think that's important to have in some movies too. So, All right. Uh, Baccarat, uh That gets us started off. We're going to go to me, myself, and I now uh, for my number 10. Uh, and, you know, here on this podcast, we like to stand up for a genre filmmaking. Um, and when a genre film comes along that, you know, kind of like Paul is talking about that, uh, you know, is doing something, you know, fun, um, and, or maybe even, uh, you know, sort of profound and subversive, um, you know, we'd like to highlight that because those films don't always, you know, get the sort of critical or prestige attention, whatever that maybe they deserve. But, uh, I, I may be, uh, building up a little bit too much to talk about freaky, uh, which is my number 10, uh, I absolutely love uh, Christopher Landon, who is one of my favorite genre directors right now. Um, between the Happy Death Day films, I mean, the Happy Death, the first Happy Death Day is like become one of my favorite movies, honestly. Like I rewatch it all the time. Um, and I think it's just really, really fun. The second one, I think, is a great time as well, as even though it's not as successful as the first. Um, Freaky, I think, falls in between the two for me, quality-wise. Uh, I really, really had a great time with this. Uh, I think his just, you know, I guess it's a trend now of, like, we're just going to take, like, some uh, 80s comedy pre premise and, uh, or, you know, even further back comedy premise, um, and we're going to turn it into, like, a fun slasher movie. Um, and this one is definitely a lot more of a horror movie than either of the Happy Death Days were, which I think were almost more of, like, whodunits a little bit. Um with this sort of, you know, sci-fi time travel or, you know, time travel thing going on. Um, but sure. uh, yeah, this is, you know, a, a body swap movie. Aaron mentioned it. Um, Catherine Newton and Vince Vaughn, you know, are a high school girl and serial killer who swap bodies uh, and hijinks ensue. And I think the thing about Landon that is becoming clear from his films that I think is what elevates them so much for me is there's just such a real heart to all of his films. Um, it's not just, you know, pure genre thrills. Like, um, I think he really cares about his characters and gives them um, some really emotional stuff to work with alongside all of the, uh, you know, fun hijinks, whatever. I think this was true of Happy Death Day, you know, Tree, we get to learn a lot about this character. And, 
you know, I've always said about how we did that. One of my favorite things about the movie is that it's at the, at the end of the day, it's about a movie about this character trying to become a good person. And she becomes a good person at the end of the movie um, or something closer to a good person than she was at the start of the movie. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a family um, element to this movie um, that I think really works. Uh, I think Catherine Newton is giving a really, really strong performance here um, as, you know, it's the less showy of the two performances because, you know, Vince Vaughn gets to be in the girl's body and, you know, do some of the jokes that come with that. Although I don't think the movie goes too far down that cliche row, which is good um, with the, you know, body swap jokes we've seen before. But I think Catherine Newton is doing something a little more difficult with her performance, um, you know, being more intimidating, I guess, than uh, you would ever expect her to see from her. And I think she's been really good at some TV shows, uh, hasn't quite gotten the movie role uh, that is right for her until now. I think this is uh, really good uh, from Catherine Newton. Uh, and Vince Vaughn is, is a great time too. So yeah, this movie is not as profound as a lot of the movies that we'll talk about, but um, it is a ton of fun. It's funny and it will, uh, you know, it will tug on your heartstrings more than you would expect from a movie like this. So it was pretty much a bullseye for me. Yeah, I love this pick. Uh, obviously I talked about it a little bit, but just to talk about it a little bit more, um, I was a huge fan of Happy Death Day. Happy Death Day to you, even gianter fan of. So that I just love that sequel. Um, yeah, Gianter, Paul, I'm, you can look that one up. It means really, really big. Um, but oh, just more the the opinion surprised me, not not necessarily the. Oh, I understand. <laughs> well, my opinions, my opinions, you know, are you know mine and mine, you know, well, it's surprised from time to time. But you know, I I really did have a good time with this movie, and I went in with very low expectations, which is always the best way to go into most movies, I'm sure, but. I'm a huge Vince Vaughn fan of the work he's been doing over the last five years. I don't feel like it's gotten the recommend recognition it deserves. Actually, I really liked uh, Dragged Across to Concrete. Also, I thought he was really great in that. Um, and yeah, it's a crazy, challenging movie. But I think he's being really bold with the selections he's made over the last few years. So I was, it was nice to see him kind of shift gears to something light like this and still be able to kind of rock it. I wanted to have a good time with this movie, and then Universal made it so that you couldn't even watch this movie when I tried to watch it. It was like in between the rental and buying period, and yeah, I was trying to—I was going to watch this for the longest time, and I just thought like the twenty-dollar rent price point was just a little too much for this specific movie for me. And then I went out to, when I went, I was like, oh, you know what? I'll go ahead and bite the bullet. I know Scott really liked this, uh, and then it was unavailable to watch. So I, I had certainly planned to watch this for the podcast so I could give some takes, but uh, I haven't seen it. I, I also really liked, especially the first Happy Death Day. Um, but I'm eager, I'm eager to watch this. I think Catherine Newton, like weirdly one of the bright spots of Detective Pikachu, which is a weird thing that I said. Um, but yeah, it was, <laughs> I, I, this is something I'm looking forward to, though. I liked uh, Pikachu in that movie. Uh, any thoughts on Freaky? Yeah, no, I, it, it just missed, it just missed out of my top twenty. I am was a late convert to Happy Death Day. I only watched it a couple years ago. Although I guess it only came out a few years ago. I, I wasn't that late to it, I suppose. Um, but really enjoyed that. Um, and I, you know, was a little bit less, I guess, thrilled about Happy Death Day to you. Although it still definitely still had its highlights. And then I guess I would agree with that. This this feels like it sits in between those two, although closer to Happy Happy Death Day to you um, mm -hmm. than the original. For me, I, I do think that, I, I guess I was surprised almost, Scott, knowing your taste, I was almost surprised that you liked this movie as much as you did, because I, I think that it goes more towards that sort of like eye-rolly, um, 
body swap jokes than you give it credit for, but I, I don't mind it that much. Um, so I was surprised that you liked it as much as you ha- as you did. But Catherine Newton's great. Um, look, she's getting paid now because she's going to be Cassie Lang uh, in Quantum Mania or whatever the Ant-Man 3 movie is going to be called. And so I'm excited for her. I'm excited to see her in that. And she'll probably be like in a Young Avengers movie with Florence Pugh and, you know, insert all the other, you know, oh. Haley Steinfeld and Aaron's heart shattering. Yeah, I probably like it more than Aaron, but that's still the idea of that is a bit much. Look, I, I think um, that you take good actors and you put them in movies, and then they probably end up being good, in my opinion. But that's just me. But yeah, look, I enjoyed this film. Vince Vaughn is is good. I I do think that uh, the the complement of these two performances is really funny, and it does have its heartwarming moments. Just just missed out of my top twenty. It's it's, it's a good shot though. Uh, all right, we're going to Paul now for your number nine, Paul. Ride Your Wave. Tell us more about this one, because I'm not sure if any of us have seen this. Yeah, so this is a uh, Japanese animated film. Um, this is actually, this is really depressing to say, the only movie in my top ten I saw in theaters. I saw this at the Hawaii Film Festival, actually, back at the end of 2019. Um, but this is from uh, Masaki Yuasu, who is one of my favorite animated directors. He is making really bold animation choices, I think, the studio that he's working with, Science Saru. Um, he's putting out this really interesting stuff. He did like the um, the Night of Short Walk on Girl and Lou Over the Wall and a bunch of other really interesting animated films. And this is basically a film about a young woman who moves to a seaside town um, and she takes up, you know, her, her passion of surfing. And there she meets a firefighter who saves her life um, and they begin a relationship. And then at some point later in the movie, she experiences um, this really like traumatic incident. And I think like the movie's about her reconciling her grief and coming to terms with the new the way that her life is now. And there's a specific song that is sort of a, a motif throughout the movie that will get almost guaranteed get stuck in your head. Um, this is on HBO max now. So if anyone is at least curious about it, like it's on there, you can stream it pretty easily. Um, but it's such an affecting movie and I, it's so gorgeous to look at too. If you watch it, I think it's some of the best animation you'll see um, in quite a while. I love how distinct the style is and all of his movies have this sort of like loose, oily painted style where, there's not necessarily a lot of rigid lines and everything is sort of more free form. Um, and I think that serves sort of the, you know, the surfing motif really well. And I think that the conclusion of this movie is really moving. There's a great scene set at Christmas. So it's something you could watch during the holidays too. It's got a lot of different things I love in animation. And like, he's a, a director that I really, um, you know, I really watch everything that, that he puts out. I think he's, he's doing some really interesting stuff. And I think that, you know, people would really like this if they gave it a chance. And I think it's one of those movies that, you know, it's not obviously not really talked about. It really went under the radar, but, um, I really, really loved it. I, I bought it on Blu-ray and everything. And I think like it's one of those movies that, you know, with the dub or the sub, I think um, both are pretty worthwhile. And I'd recommend this movie to a lot of people because I think like it's more accessible than you might think a movie like this maybe necessarily sounds. But yeah, I, I really love this movie. Yeah, I need to see this one. Um, I got to like a certain point this year, like a couple weeks before the podcast where I was like, all right, this is my cutoff because I didn't want to like watch stuff and then all of a sudden it's like oh recent do i really like this or is it just recency bias like do i really am i really going to put this in my list whatever so i mean i am i am accumulating a list of like here's now the stuff after we're done with this podcast that i'm going to go back and like actually um tick off so this is probably in there anyone anyone else seen this scott i don't think you have right no but uh i'm adding it to my list because i'm a big fan of japanese animation so it's on the list now all right well thank you paul for introducing us to it um we're going back to Aaron now for his number nine. Uh, he, he teased it earlier, but I believe his bottom five are all outliers. Um, yeah. This is a movie that I have seen. Um, it is called Black Bear. Uh, tell us yeah. more about it. Lawrence, uh, yeah, it's 
directed by Lawrence Michael Levinson, um, also written by him, starring Aubrey Plaza. She is she is absolute Audrey uh, Aubrey Plaza is absolutely amazing in this movie. Um, she is if, if every other character bothers you in the movie, she'll be enough to keep you through the movie. There's um, some intentional um, character choices from I feel Christopher Abbott and particularly the second part of the movie that can really maybe make some people who are familiar with like movie making and whatnot roll their eyes and feel like it's like a caricature but i feel that's very intentional um and this is like a movie that definitely has a lot of layers to it um and i don't think there's one right answer to it i've watched it three times now and started to form my kind of opinion on it which i won't get into here but i love a movie like this it will remind you of it will give people like Birdman vibes at points, I think. Mulholland Drive points at points. Like, there's certain aspects, and some people will accuse it of copycatting. I didn't feel that was the case. Um, and uh, I just really, really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, I feel Christopher Abbott um, in Possessor, which Scott mentioned also, he was really great in that movie. And I loved yeah. Possessor. Um, that uh, was uh, Brandon Cronenberg, is definitely his father's son uh like it was like watching like it's sometimes like kids are nothing like their parents uh here it is david cronenberg and brandon cronenberg are very similar based on what i've seen so far here but back to black bear um yeah <laughs> i was about to say i was like we've been talking <laughs> about dovetailing me, right? into another movie <laughs> oh i can i can, I'm, i mean welcome to my reviews this is the but uh you can cut out any of that if you want to keep it <laughs> fine no, I'm leaving it. I in. think that it. My point is, Christopher Abbott is, I think, one of the better actors of 2020. Sure. I don't feel him really being brought up a lot, and uh, yeah, I've liked a lot of uh, the work he's done. And uh, then Sarah Gordon uh, played the other. It was it's basically three main characters for a lot of the movie, but uh, the second half turns into kind of a lot more of a psychological, like kind of a. Uh, unleashing of the world it's in but yeah really different movie and uh i enjoyed it quite a bit even though i dovetailed into other movies there <laughs> this didn't quite completely work for me uh maybe because it does riff off of some movies i really love like mulholland drive that you mentioned like that's in top 20 of all time for me um but i uh i do think that the performances are great here like i, I think aubrey plaza deserves oscar consideration i think um, she really, really makes the most of an e of a meaty role, um, but I think she she is great. And yeah, Christopher Abbott, I totally agree, having an awesome year. Sarah Gadden is really good as well. Um, yeah. And uh, I would much rather watch this type of even if it doesn't totally work for me. I'd much rather watch like this type of swing for the fences thing um, than I would, you know, something that is just mediocre um, and playing it safe. And you know, also doesn't work. So I I respect. Um, you know, the director and cast and everything for going for it. Uh, and I might might like it more on a rewatch. I could definitely see how a rewatch could, you know, change your, your viewpoint. On it. It's very good on a rewatch. And it's just a movie that on the first watch, you definitely have to be very patient and allow it to fully play out before you can really start to put it together. Because if you're trying to put it together in the middle, it's like it's falling apart throughout that. But once the full picture is there, it's, it's definitely a movie that on rewatches it's increased each of mine too. So I agree with that for sure. I should check out yeah. Chris Rabbit on the count of three next week. 
Christopher yeah. Abbott on the, uh, the you know the star of the aforementioned piercing from the director of The Grudge uh, that oh, comes wow. back around again. Um, oh, yeah, he he's having a really strong twenty. I mean, the decade twenty twenties. You know, he's he's going to be in two two movies actually that I'm seeing. It's at Sundance in about a week or so. Um, and yeah, I I haven't seen this. Uh, I've been sort of curious about it to be honest. I was like thinking about firing it up for consideration for this podcast, and then I think it, other stuff just called to me more. I'll probably watch this at some point, but. Um, there was just something about it that didn't necessarily super draw me in. I like Aubrey Plaza in some things, not as much in others, but I'm curious just because of the filmmaking aspect, I think like sometimes I think, especially like as someone who has a film degree, I can be a little hokey, some of that stuff, but, um, I'm definitely curious about the movie just cause I think I've heard a lot of people, um, even the people that don't like it say it's interesting in some sort of way. So it's, it seems like it's worth a watch. Yeah. Probably the strangest screening that Scott watched this year too. Cause didn't you watch like on an Alamo draft house? Yeah, like, Alamo draft house, uh, yeah. It had a, a Q and a afterwards with, uh, with Aubrey Plaza. So that was interesting. Yeah. That was fun. Um, and yeah, you know, sh- shed a little bit of light on the movie. So that was cool. Um, all right, Aaron, we're sticking with you. The King of Staten Island, your number eight, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, okay. So, so it's it's lovely, about, about uh, big time adolescence first and then script. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> Staten Island. Um, yeah, this is uh, this was like one of the first I feel like kind of movies that did the whole like deciding to skip the theaters. Maybe not, but either way, Judd Apatow. I'm a fan of Judd Apatow's work, uh, even his later work as of late. So um, I get some people are not huge fans. It's 137 minutes, and it is you feel that runtime. Um, so if you do not like this world, these characters, I think this movie. It has to be one of your least favorite movies like of the year, probably. <laughs> to be honest. And I'll totally understand if that's your take. I myself, uh, I recognized the world pretty quickly and um, it reminded me a lot of my own kind of um, where I came from earlier on, not so much where I am now in DC. But um, either way, like Pete Davidson does play Pete Davidson in this movie. I'm not saying he's stretching his acting wing, so to speak, here and really you know, showing a lot of range, but he plays that character really effectively, I think, in this movie. Um, His name is Scott, and, you know, it's like kind of a, it's a semi-autobiographical, you know, kind of, oh, yeah, there we go. Something like it's Scott. I guess John Abbott liked it, Scott, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Great, I have to see it now. (laughs) Yeah, and Pete Davidson's father's name was Scott, so I think, you know, it was just like, you know, some homages there. Uh, that I just think this movie had a lot of heart to it. So, um, and Marissa Tomei, I think, had one of the better supporting performances that I don't feel a lot of people are bringing up also. And then Bill Burr has been acting, and that's great to see. And uh, it's good to see it in a not Star Wars role here. And uh, he plays like a really good grouchy firefighter, which again, not really spreading his wings with the acting range here, but these characters are kind of playing what they know, but they're playing it really well. Um, and there's just, it's just like a very, uh, I like, I just thought nice coming of age story about a guy who really didn't have any sort of direction or want for direction in his life, forming it, joining, uh, you know, the fire, becoming a firefighter over the course of the movie, which Pete Davidson's father was who, you know, he died in nine 11 as a firefighter as a first responder. So I just think that there's a there was a lot of you know probably therapy that Scott got out of this movie and I or that uh, not Scott Pete Davidson got out of this movie playing his father you know in a way in Scott and uh, 
I lost my father at a young age. So when those movies I feel are portrayed in an accurate and way or at least authentic way, I should say, I uh, appreciate that. I didn't feel it was done in a hokey or in a way trying to ploy, but I felt it was a genuine exercise of a son who was still working through a lot of losses that his father, you know, caused with his life. So yeah, it worked for me. And so the 137 minutes, I was happy that it lasted as long as it did because I didn't really want it to end. But if you wanted the movie to end and it's 137 minutes of Pete Davidson, you're, it's not for you. But I think that if you go into that movie with that attitude, you're just don't watch this movie because it's going to be what you think, in my opinion. But if you're going in with an open mind, then I think that it could be for you, could not. It really worked for me, though. Paul, did you see this one? No, no, I, the, yeah, I don't know. You don't have to hedge. Like, if you love the movie, you love the movie, Aaron. Like, just fully, yeah, just, you know, embrace it. You know, don't worry about what other people think of it. Um, it's one of those ones that I think I was vaguely curious about, but I think as I started to whittle down my sort of 2020 watch list at the end of the year, it just wasn't one that I think necessarily called to me as much. I think I, I just ended up leaning into more stuff that spoke to me more of my life and my experience. And, and if not, then something that's way different. I think this was sort of got stuck in the middle ground of, like, um, portraying this real thing that I don't know if I would have connected to as much, but um, I like Pete Davidson quite a bit. I, again, I do have the Jed Apatow like problem where I think like his last, I don't know, four movie, four or five movies all have like 20 to 30 minutes that you just don't necessarily really need on there. Um, but it's one I might watch eventually. I'm, I'm not totally sure. It just, um, but I, I've heard great things about Marissa Tomei and Bill Burr in the movie. So I'm sort of like, if anything, curious to watch the two of them as his parents. This, yeah. yeah. I Go ahead, Scott. Well, I was going to say, I, I made a, a, the illusion earlier when we were talking. I can't remember which movie we were talking about earlier about films that I looked at and were just too long. And every time I thought I was about to watch it, they were just too long. Like, this is one of those. Like, it was in my watch list since you know, it came out in June or whenever Universal dropped it. And I was like, mm, maybe I'll watch it today. And then just seeing the 137-minute runtime, I'm just like, yeah, I'll just do something different, um, which is unfortunate. And I... I don't want to drag us into a different conversation, but I think that it's one of those things where if this had been released in theaters, I probably would have watched it and not really thought too much about the runtime, but because I'm staring at a TV screen and I can see the runtime and I can see, you know, the movie next to it, what its runtime is and choosing something different each time, I think is that it ended up being. So it's, that's like one of the funny things about losing the theatrical experience among many things, I suppose, but um, this year that I didn't think about beforehand, but has been, I can feel the effects of, you know, not being willing to commit as much time to, to, you know, longer movies when I have shorter movies as options. I think that's salient. That's a really salient point. Yeah. That it's, it, it becomes hard to pick it, unless it's like a director that you really love, or there's something that's really drawing you to it. It's hard to necessarily pick the longer movies over something that's a little shorter and you know, something maybe even a little lighter too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm thankful thinking back to last year that, you know, something like the Irishman that I was able to see it in theaters because I don't know, you know, what I would have thought if I had watched it at home, I, I don't think I would have appreciated it as much as I, I did ultimately. But um, yeah, I haven't seen the King of Staten Island either. Um, I'm not a big Judd Apatow fan and yeah, not to sound like a broken record, but when you take a director who I'm not that much of a fan of and combine it with a two hour, 20 minute runtime, eh, it falls down the list for me. But, yeah, it's a, John, it's a John Apatow movie. It's a Pete Davidson-led movie. Um, I mean, it's. but I think everybody's executing what they do well. But if you don't like that, it's not a movie that you need to run out and see. 
in my opinion, even though I really liked it. But yeah, like it's not hedging at all, but it's just like, yeah. I mean, you know, I think everyone's list has those kind of personal choices. I mean, that's certainly how I feel about Freaky. I don't think that's going to be showing up in many uh, people's top <laughs> 10 lists. But, uh, you know, it's your list for a reason. Yeah, it, it goes to my heart. But uh, all right, Scott, we're finally getting to one of your outlier choices. Oh, my. Um, wake up. Um, this is a movie that is technically a TV movie uh, and therefore will not be, you know, be counting for the Oscars. But uh, it's a very good movie. Uh Talk more about bad education. I'd love to talk more about bad education. Your number for a really seven, long, by the way. Yeah. yeah, my number seven. For a really long time, this film was at the top of my list for 2020. Like, really long time. Longer than I expected it to be when we first watched it back in April, May. I forget it. I think it was earlier on in the in, you know post-COVID world that this came out. And it was a breath of fresh air because I was like, it had gotten to the point where it had been like a month there, a month and a half, I think. And I was getting kind of like, I don't know, sour about not getting the quality of movies that I was hoping for. You know, I am a big fan of, of the bigger blockbusters and, it, and a lot of them had been pushed at, at that point. And it was around that time. And I was like looking at the previous release calendar. I was like, wow, what this is such a bummer <laughs> among many other reasons why the pandemic is a bummer. <laughs> this is a big bummer. Um, and, but then watching this movie, I was just like, wow, this is such a breath of fresh air. Hugh Jackman is amazing in this movie. I, I genuinely think that he'd be an Oscar contention. Um, if this film had been, you know, had qualified if it weren't an, you know, an HBO uh, I guess made for TV type type movie. Oh, that's a strange thing to say about this film. Um, and Allison Janney. It's not TV. Really it's HBO. Sorry, I should. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's the home box office. Um, but yeah, no. So this is a this is a based on a true story about. I'm forgetting the name of the high of the high of like the of the school district, but it's on Long Island, and it's about a, a real like the largest embezzlement case in U.S. like high school history about this principal who is played by Hugh Jackman. I think his name is Frank Tassoni. And he is essentially, and you know, he and, and several of his other, I guess, like administrative colleagues are embezzling, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars from this high school district and uh, from the school district and skimming off the top. And uh, basically, you know, one thing leads to another, not to spoil the movie too much, but one thing leads to another. And, you know, the whole, the whole, I guess, scheme and whatnot sort of falls apart uh, based off a couple of reckless decisions from some of the, you know, peripheral people involved. And I just think that it's such a, great character study in my mind, which is not what I expected going into a film like this. It feels like this is going to be some sort of like, you know, based on real events type sort of biopic where you, where you have, you have the scheme unravel and the detectives get to the bottom of it. That's like kind of what I was thinking it was going to be like when I was going into it. But really it's this character study of Frank Tassone who, who is doing these things and how he, you know, sort of justifies it to himself mentally. Um, and also sort of like what, in some ways, like what are the factors that drive him to do these things? And, you know, what is he doing this for? Uh, whatever his motivations, whatever his dreams. And Hugh Jackman's spectacular. Um, the supporting cast of like Allison Jan Janney and Geraldine Viswanathan, I also think are really strong in this film. But for me, Jackman's definitely the standout. And the places that this film goes with just the character study of Frank really, really surprised me in, in, a, in a very pleasant way. And I thought that it was, you know, probably one of, yeah, probably the best biopic that I saw this year. That's yeah, he Herodus. Yeah, Finley he finds an amazing, um, you know, amount of empathy for these characters yeah. who sh like are despicable. To be honest, like the things that they have done are despicable, um, and yet you know he actually makes you feel something for them. I mean, he doesn't get you to the place of like, oh, they're misunderstood, which is good. I don't think you should be getting to that place, but yeah. Um, yeah, at least you know tries to put you in their shoes a little bit, which I think is a difficult task. But he, you know, even though. 
thoroughbreds was more of my jam. I think uh, I think Finley is absolutely two for two with two bangers here. Yeah, um, Paul, Aaron, you guys have seen this one. Yeah, um, I again, I have a lot of appreciation for Geraldine Viswanathan. I think that she like she's one of those rising stars that I just can't wait to see get the right role because I think she's gotten like good spots here and there, but I'd love to see something that really hits with her sort of in the lead. I think she's really, really good in this. It's got a lot of my favorite people in sort of character actor performances. I love this version of Ray Romano. Like this is kind of like my platonic ideal of him, like as a supporting performer. Um, and yeah, it's, I, I think it's called Roslyn is the school district. I believe that, that, that this is right. about, and it's like, yeah, the biggest embezzlement in school history. And it's like, because you sort of know going in that, you know, this is a real life case, you know, there's probably going to be some sort of end. And I think the way that it falls, that it all falls apart is really satisfying. And again, it, it, it's sad, but it's also feels right. You don't feel like an empty feeling necessarily that these people got caught or anything. It's got a lot of gray area to it that I think I really appreciate. And I was, I was wondering, you know, with um, thoroughbreds, which I liked, but I wasn't sure how that filmmaking style would sort of translate to a bigger scale like this, something that's that traverses a little more area. And I think it's great to see Corey Finley kind of stretches his legs a little bit and be able to kind of do some more directing stuff that he yeah. wasn't really able to show necessarily in thoroughbreds. One thing that is clear is that he is one of the best directors right now for telling stories about affluent people. Uh, I think that yeah. is clear from both uh, thoroughbreds and bad education, but yeah, I affluent take your people point. who do bad things. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> but it's a little more complicated in thoroughbreds, but you know, it's actually, it's complicated in bad education too, right? At, which again, I think is one of the strengths of but yeah, Corey Finley is a wonderful. I think this is the writer best Andrew. Hugh Jackman has probably ever been, actually. Which, like, he's yeah. been in better movies, maybe, right. but to me, this might be the performance I think that I, from his career that I think stands out the most to me. I'm trying yeah. to rack my brain of like any movie that I think is just so clearly better than than this. Prestige and Logan, I think, are the two one that yeah, most people would point to. Yeah, um, but I don't know. It's not. It's number seven on my list. So that that's what I think. Yeah. Of. It's really good. And I'm Logan and Prestige. You want to talk about Chris Nolan? Just wait a little bit. <laughs> All right, uh, Paul, we're going back to you. And this is one that is probably, you know, I mentioned that uh, I'm making sort of a list, accumulating a list of 2020 movies to watch after this. I think this is probably like the number one movie on my list because I actually think I'll really like it. But your number seven is The Vast of Night. Yes, I. this is one of the movies I may be most pumped to talk about. Um, I first saw this for Indie Spirit Awards voting at the end of 2019. And I honestly was kind of unimpressed with it. Um, but when I think back to that time, I was watching like five movies a day and I don't think I gave it the attention that it deserved. And I rewatched it um, a little under a week ago and I was really blown away by it. It's like this sort of art house version of an Amlin movie. And I think it's so entertaining and it's like that movie magic that like, you you know, as a kid, the stuff that you watch that really opens your eyes to what the medium can be. And it's like, I'm not saying it's one of the greatest films ever made necessarily, you know, but it it is those strong ET super eight vibes, I think. I think the sound design is awesome. And like for a debut, this is some of the best direction of any movie that I saw this year. The way the camera moves, um, the sound design is like really on point. There's a lot of crosstalk and the way that it overlaps is like, you know, it's you're not meant to understand necessarily everything that's going on, but the environment and the sense of place is so strong. It's about this young, these two kids. One is a radio DJ. One is a girl who controls like a, a call center at her house. And they begin to hear something strange over the radio and they go and investigate what's happening in this small town and they try to see what's going on there in, in New Mexico. Um, so there are some hints of what potentially that might be. Um, 
but it's just got this great sense of place and it's it's just really entertaining it's it's a great movie movie which is a sounds like a weird description but i think if you've seen it you know what i mean um it just really captures you and i think it takes you on this ride and it's a super brief 90 minutes you know it's on amazon prime pretty easy to find very accessible and one of those things that yeah i, I discovered and i was just so excited the second time i watched it how much more i loved it um and it was a it was one of those things that i think like I sort of put off to the side. It's like, oh, this is pretty good. But like, I rewatched it and I was like, no, this is like one of my favorite debuts in the last few years, I think. And really fun filmmaking. Yeah, this looks like the type of sci-fi film that I think I would really enjoy. And, it, you know, when this came out, I just kind of like didn't even really give it a second thought. Um, but I mean, it's really about two podcasters. So it's yeah. like the ultimate demographic <laughs> for this podcast. <laughs> the ultimate it's, it's a it's up for the golden brick, which is film spotting's award for like best under the radar sort of movie that isn't going to get uh, the most love during awards. And it's in there with like first cow and Shirley and never early sometimes always. So like, uh, you know, it's, it's in there with some, some pretty heavy hitters from this year. Um, and yeah, I, I think I'm going to enjoy this and I'll probably watch it very soon. Has anyone else seen this? Yeah, I've seen Aaron, it. Aaron. Um, yeah, and this is this is a pretty accurate description calling it an art house Amblin film because this is the approach to an Amblin film that will get me to like an Amblin film. I hate ET. It's one of my least favorite movies like ever, and I'll get into that on another podcast. Wow. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it. I I've yeah, do not like ET. But Vast of Night was great. Uh, it's so atmospheric, and that's very cliche. But for this movie, I feel is very appropriate um, to label it, and I just think that. The framing device it used leaves me really, you know, looking forward to Patterson's future work. I think he could kind of revisit different types of stories in a similar kind of vein, but I'll leave it at that until you see it. But I do recommend this to just about anybody. I think it does a good job of being weird, but also not kind of going over your head with the weirdness. I think it kind of fits within the story it's trying to tell, so... It's good, good story though. Ninety minutes, quick. Made on a razor thin budget, seven hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, it's and it it honestly Crazy. looks better than yeah. movies like you know made in the tens of millions. It's funny how that happens a lot. Yeah. Of I think that it, it forced <laughs> ingenuity is what is what filmmaking magic is about. Yeah. Is those constraints, um, you know, pressure makes diamonds kind of thing, where it's like you're under the gun. Wonder Woman, uh, well, which well, like stay tuned with potato later on in the episode. <laughs> no, <laughs> that is that is a false tease right there. Um, Brutal. Um, I could have had the, the fans. <laughs> yeah, I was honestly surprised. I, I, for a second, I thought Scott that was actually going to be Scott's least favorite movie of the year, but he came up with something different. <laughs> I I think one of the interesting things about that, though, I'm talking about how a movie looks is not like looks. It looks more expensive. Like these days, it's like you can shoot something with an iPhone. And it's gonna look good. I mean, that's like basically what Soderbergh's done this last like. Sean Baker did it with Tangerine. Yeah, like it, you can make a fit. Like you don't need to buy a really expensive camera anymore to make a film look good. Of course, you still need the production dime, et cetera. It's not just about the camera you you purchase and whatnot. But yeah, it makes it a little bit easier to spend wisely, maybe on your budget. All right. Speaking of films that look great, uh, it is Mank time, gentlemen. Uh, my number seven is Mank, uh, David Fincher's latest film. Uh, obviously, we've talked a lot about this on Some Like It Scott this year with us doing our entire Fincher series. Please go back and check that out if you have not. Um, you know, I was the sort of the catalyst for us choosing Fincher to do for our next director because he is absolutely one of my all-time favorites. And so um, we had some really good conversations about some of my favorite 
movies of all time. I think Fincher has four masterpieces, and I think this movie is the best of the rest, uh, so to speak. Uh, I think that uh, it's a really interesting old Hollywood tale that manages to be sort of both cynical and nostalgic, sentimental, all of those things um, at the same time, which I think is a tough uh, line to walk. I think it has some really interesting ideas about um, authorship and, um, you know, this this whole idea about, you know, Gary Oldman's mank and whether he wants to, you know, fight for his uh, name to be on the screenplay, um, or, you know, whether, you know, it's going to go down as an Orson Welles uh, film through and through that the film being Citizen Kane, of course. Um, and I think the, uh, you know, it, I, I personally don't think that the movie has a huge learning curve, I guess. I know that some people have said that. Um, but, uh, I think if you've watched Citizen Kane, uh, you'll, you'll understand most of what's going on here. Um, and I think it's a gorgeous film to look at the black and white, I think is a great choice. I love the things he tricks he does with the cigarette burns and all of that on the camera lens to give it a real old timey feel a really cool Reznor and Ross again, one of two movies this year where they're doing like a totally out of left field score for them, um, that I think, uh, works really well. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not wow, super like wowed by any of the cast here, but I think like they all do really you know, solid work. Amanda Seyfried is probably the best person in it um, as Marion Davies. Uh, but yeah, for me, the best part of the movie, and Paul kind of alluded to it, talking about that uh, birthday scene, the, uh, the script by Fincher's father, Jack Fincher, and then Fincher, David Fincher himself punched it up um, after his father's death. Uh, I, this is the screenplay of the year for me. I think it just has like this rat-a-tat uh, dialogue like that perfectly feels like I mean it feels again ripped right out of some old Hollywood um, you know film noir almost the way that the the dialogue you know just it has a great musicality to it uh, and that scene that Paul mentioned in particular yeah I think is the, the best example of that there's some political stuff that the movie gets into that I think is really interesting and timely with talking about Upton Sinclair's uh, campaign for is it senator or congressman from California governor or one of the uh, positions. Um, but there's some, uh, there's some really interesting conversations around that that happen. And yeah, I think, uh, it's a, it's a film. I'm not going to say that it's, I mean, this film is for cinephiles, right? It's for movie lovers. Um, but I am a movie lover. Uh, and so I ate it up with a spoon. Uh, and I think it's a, a really great film from Fincher. And, um, I hope we don't have to wait six years for his next one as, uh, you know, the guy makes pretty much nothing but bangers. Other thoughts on Mank? Yeah, I, I really like this. Obviously, this is in my teens. Um, I think Gary Oldman is really the one thing keeping me from, like, really, really loving this. I've just never really liked him, like, loved him as the central figure of a film, I think. And I think the stuff he's doing doesn't necessarily fit with the tenor of what the movie's trying to be. Um I would listen to Charles Dance read the phone book, you know, like his voice is, I think, just majestic. And I love hearing him speak. And I think a lot of the actors in here, I think Tom Burke um, does a really great job as Orson Welles. You know, he's not necessarily in the movie physically a ton, but you feel his presence kind of looming over. I love that this movie sort of inspired me to go back and watch stuff like the front page and dinner at eight and other sort of things written by Mankiewicz. Um, and I, th I think, you know, to be honest, I think watching this without watching Citizen Kane first would be a mistake. I think that that informs and, and makes the movie so much like such a better experience. And that's honestly a privilege. Like get, have an excuse to watch part of Citizen Kane is like a great thing. I think more right. than anything. 
Um, I think yeah, also I mean, the, the scene in the garden, the walk that they do is is gorgeous yeah. too. Um, you know, this is a great year for Tuppence Middleton. Uh, I think she's had quite the year, <laughs> the as we'll see maybe yeah. get into eventually. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just think that this is really strong, and I, you know, it, it clearly was written in the '90s, and you can really feel that. You know, um, Fincher and, and Eric Roth kind of tried to punch this up to make it feel modern, and it does in a lot of ways. But there are some ideas that I think feel like they're kind of ripped out of the that era. But I think it's so beautiful that Fincher made, like, honestly, like this love letter to his dad in a lot of ways. I think that's yeah. like, um, again, it, between this and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like these male auteurs doing like these really weird, warm and like yeah, earnest sort of homages is is, 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 is interesting development, I think, of the last couple of years. And I think that like. And not just male auteurs, but like male auteurs who are known for like. Oh, yeah. Super the, like violent, like sometimes really dark movies. Yeah. Hall of Fame guys yeah. are like making thoughtful explorations of, of this humane stuff. And I think, again, this is a, a different color for Fincher in a lot of ways. And again, Scott mentioned like the small details, that stuff all just rules. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's hear the negative Nancy's now. <laughs> uh, no, look, I'm not going to dive into all my criticisms. I would agree with Paul that I think Gary Oldman is. I mean, I understand why you want to cast Gary Oldman in, into your movie because I think he's a really good actor, but I don't know if this was the role uh, for for him. And that, yeah, that that did that. I did find that a snack. Look, look, I saw this film without watching Citizen Kane, and uh, that was something that we talked at length about uh, on the podcast when we reviewed it. And I found I found it challenging to to follow along. Not that I didn't understand some of the stuff by the end, which I think I did, but I felt like I was I was drowning a little bit in some of the context of the movie. Uh, for for a good portion of it, which was a barrier, and I mean that's just the truth. Like, I think it's fine. Like, you can make you can make movies however you want to, like sequels, whatever. Like, not every not every movie has to be perfectly accessible to everyone without having seen something. Um, but I I did find that it was tough for me because I hadn't seen it. And uh, look, I'm planning on watching Citizen Kane this year, so maybe I'll come I back. Think and you can watch it. Come back to it. I think I think it'll it'll be a little better for you, just because like. Yeah, no, so I know. The that. humor in that stuff is like little nuanced. And I think, you know, the stuff that makes it most effective for me is that it's kind of a little yeah. inert, sort of inert. And that, and that makes sense, right? But like, I mean, some of the, like the, the most basic stuff that Scott's talking about on the podcast uh, about like you, you need to understand presenting something like, like what Rosebud means. Like, I didn't know what the Rosebud meant when I walked into the movie. Like, I didn't know. Um, so, like, that's just a challenge, right? Yeah, no, I'm film illiterate. It's fine. <laughs> no, it's just, it's just, it's just wild. Hey, this year is going to be a great year for Scott because of the feature presentation. Yeah, it's true. That's a, that is a hundred percent the truth. I'm I'm watching a lot of films that a lot of older films that I haven't seen that uh, I'll be catching up on this year. But look, uh, other than that, like I like the the garden scene's my favorite from the film. I really enjoyed uh, the garden scene. Just really, I don't know, just a good time. Uh, um, but besides that, like I this film fell well, well short of my top twenty. But I understand what there is to like about it. Uh, definitely. I think that I wish I had enjoyed it more because I like Fincher quite a bit. Aaron, anything to add? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I didn't dislike it. Um, I just, I, I recognized it more from the technical aspects of it. Um, I really liked the score as well. Yeah. Um, and then visually it was gorgeous. I thought the black and white cinematography was just, I, I love that. I just wanted to love the contents as much as I liked the exterior of it but uh i mean i really d do like that it drove people to watch this and kane i love citizen kane and so um i did appreciate being able to you know follow along with the story and connect with him that way but um you know i respect that for fincher this was a love letter for his father so who am i to tell him that it was the wrong call and uh 
I still like that Netflix, this is still, I think a good example of Netflix allowing their creator to do what they wanted to do with their work. So I don't think there was any interference that was going on with this movie. So I appreciate that. That's true. Yeah. This was like their like Roma this year, not just because it was black and white. Right. But like this like personal story from Mm -hmm. um, an auteur who, you know, has made some sort of, you know, bigger, splashier movies. Um, Yeah. That's I didn't even think about it like that. But yeah. Um, So interesting to compare this movie to Roma for me. Not not because of because I think that the quality is different, but just like. I, it, it makes sense to make the comparison, but I, it's not one that I, I think some of the bad takes, I think there was some overlap there. Some takes I heard about both of those <laughs> movies. <laughs> um, last thing I want to say, I, I do think Tom Burke is, is fine as Orson Welles, but like to me, nothing will come close to Christian McKay as Orson Welles in me and Orson Welles, the Richard Linklater movie. Like oh, his God. performance as Orson Welles in that movie. Oh, you know who you're talking to right here. Though. <laughs> I love I know, that movie. But- yeah, I love it too. But his performance and his performance is incredible. Um, all right, let's uh, go to Aaron now for a movie that I think we'll all be agreed on the greatness of. Your number seven, The Invisible Man. Yeah, this, is this like the closest we came to a consensus pick as The Invisible Man? Um, because that'd be pretty funny if that's the case. In but. the outlier section, yeah, like this is the yeah. closest I think maybe we can. Yeah, but um, Lee Wanell, um basically in short, Lee Wanell has worked for me really, really well. Um since the first Saw movie, I just knew that first Saw movie was one. It's one of my favorite movie experiences of all time. And uh, I don't care what anybody thinks about it. But like we, I was skipping high school to see it. And just like the end of it. And the reason I bring that up is because Leo Anel's kind of sensibilities with how he constructs the stories and when he adds his twists. And, you know, even if kind of the twist doesn't completely work. Like if you check it at every single angle of it, for me, the twists are always thrilling in his movies and the twist in this movie, uh, which I won't reveal, but I think really works for me. Then the lens of the Me Too movement to view it through and not have it feel, as you mentioned, kind of preachy. I don't know if you're talking about this movie or not, but I don't think it's preachy with the lens it views it through. And then I haven't seen Shirley. I hate to admit that. And I was trying not to listen to you guys describe it because Really, right away, it sounds like a movie that's up my alley and I need to see. And I hadn't heard about, to be honest. So I'm kind of, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's the crazy part. They just dumped it. I don't know. Going back and it's Hulu it. and Neon, right? It's Neon, too. Yeah. But, you know, like, so I can't compare it to this performance. But this performance to me was amazing by Elizabeth Moss. And uh, it just, I feel it kept, kept a really great pace. I can't believe it was over two hours. Like, it didn't, it felt like a 90-minute thriller to me honestly and just like um yeah i didn't see like anything about this is the last movie i think i saw in theaters either this or onward it was close to the same week whichever one i saw but um this is a movie i'm glad i got to see in theaters i feel it was a really rewarding theatrical experience i think it did some interesting things with the uh camera that like I feel Lee Wanell has done in a lot of his work so far. Upgrade was the other example, I think, for sure, where I don't think either one of these budgets is as high as it seems or as it appears. Maybe this one was higher, but I know Upgrade, they did a lot of really, you know, clever camera work to, you know, and Lee Wanell just seems like he's trying to innovate with each one of these movies and, you know, while still keeping it kind of contained and digestible. And I just feel, yeah. Elizabeth Moss put on a really great performance. Didn't quite make my top five performances by the end of the year, but I mean, there's so many great ones, but yeah, I just, I could revisit this anytime. I feel it's like a very thrilling 
good, solid um, start to the monster universe that Lee Winnell should just get full carte blanche over for the next like 20 years. You'll never believe they spent hundreds of millions of dollars building a real invisible suit. For <laughs> movie. That's right. Yeah. No. Yeah, the uh, the restaurant scene in this movie is oh like gosh. the gas moment of the. And I say I say genuine gas moment because uh, I was with a uh, friend of the pod, uh, Danny, when we we went to see this movie together, and she actually like was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like in the theater when uh, what happens with her and her sister there at the table. Uh, That's great, great scene. Yeah, Very I fun. love where this movie goes in the end as well. Like I think that the uh, the ideas at the end because it really hones in on like this aspect that like, Oh, the lack of smoking gun evidence is like the thing that keeps law enforcement, police, whatever for like, that's, that's what they can use to discredit uh, these female accusers that come forward is like that they, Oh, you don't have this smoke piece, piece of smoking gun evidence. That's like really hard to obtain in a lot of cases. Um, and the ending scene where it goes is kind of like, here's the links that she has to go to um, because she, you know, she's been pushed to this point where like she basically has to, without saying too much, like manufacture her own smoking gun evidence, um, which I think is is a really interesting idea. Uh, and it's crazy that they sort of uh, disguised that in a, you know, in a heart in a universal monster movie. Right. Um, and that gives me a lot of hope for what is to come with these, you know, universal monster reboots that they're going to be doing. I was really impressed with this movie. Um, other thoughts. I liked it. The, to me, you know, and usually when we talk about scores, we talk about them in a positive light. This is one where I really thought the score for this did not work. And honestly, it kind of threw off the mood of the movie at times. Like in some of the more tense scenes, I thought that the instrumentation was kind of all over the place. And like that took me out a little bit. And I don't love the turn that it takes sort of going from the second act into the third. I think the very end I really like, but I think it, the movie sort of loses itself trying to be sort of too pop almost like in that sort of the beginning of the second half. And that's the stuff that just keeps it down a little bit for me. I still think it's really entertaining. I've, there's one thing they do with the camera where it's inside her house. And I think it's like on the top shelf of her cabinets. And I love the way that it swivels around in that part. Um, and I think Aldous Hodge is pretty underrated in this too, but right. um, yeah, I, I, this is a movie I liked quite a bit. This is one of the last movies I saw in theaters, but for me, it didn't stick with me. I think the same way that a lot of other movies from this year have. And, you know, I, Elizabeth Moss frequently gives one of my favorite performances. I liked what she did here. I didn't necessarily like love it. I think the way that a lot of people did. So I, I, I liked it quite a bit, but didn't quite reach the level that I think that the three of you kind of all did. Yeah. Look, it was in, it was in my number 12 uh, when I was talking about my 23 11 and I really enjoyed, I'm someone I know. I think I talked about this on the podcast either when we talked about Shirley or when we talked about the invisible man, if we did talk about the podcast, I don't actually remember now. Um, whereas like Elizabeth Moss, I haven't really been like taken with until, until this year, honestly, I didn't see her smell last year, which is probably like the one of the bigger exceptions that maybe would have won won me over earlier. But I think that I was really taken with her this year, and I think it was a really good performance. And the thing that I like most about this movie that I didn't mention earlier is that I just think it takes it just makes the most of its of its premise, in my opinion. Like it, it really just like makes a lot of this maybe even more like archaic type of horror, where like you know whether something's there or not. Like there's just so much tension you can just plop a camera down and like, all right, is there something going on in the scene or is there not something going on in the scene? Right. Like, is there something that you can't see that's there or not? And I really liked that. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the bigger jump scares, but a lot of uh, jump scare type like horror film, but I think that it didn't overuse that too much. And, and that sort of, I don't want to call it a genre change, but like a shift in tone of the film that you were talking about, Paul, like that's actually something that I think worked really well for me, uh, the upgrade of it all. 
I enjoyed that sort of like tonal shift. That, that's just because like, I feel like if it had done the same thing for two hours, then I might've fallen off a little bit just because of my own personal tastes. But I definitely understand how so, like someone expecting or wanting something different out of at least that chunk of the film could be a little bit disappointed. And yeah, all this Hodge, I think he's underrated in both of the movies that we're going to talk about on the podcast. So. Oh, and I just got to say, this movie has one of the worst letterbox posters I've ever seen. It's like so painfully generic. It's like half of her face with like the handprint on the shower. Yeah. And it honestly, yeah. like, I feel like it makes me like want to not rank it as high on my list because it's just, <laughs> like, I don't like looking at that poster, which seems stupid and petty. But for some reason, that it's just always like rubbed me the wrong way. Aesthetics are important. I mean, post poster art, however, I was listening to some people talking about, I don't remember where this was that this conversation was being had, but how like DVD cover art and poster art is so much less important than it used to be because it used to be when the, in the era of video stores and stuff, like uh, that was everything, right? Like you may not know about these movies without like the internet or whatever, you would walk through the video store and if the, you know, poster or cover art like caught your eye then that could be the movie that you rent and it ends up being one of your favorite movies or something I the tragedy that is the the first reformed and little women blu-ray covers like oh my gosh the little women blu-ray cover must is be one of the both of those things. i mean i think first reformed is honestly worse but it's yeah that stuff needs to be rectified okay so it's the origins of clickbait guys it's like honestly if you're walking down the blockbuster aisle right and you see yeah. like this picture with a red circle and an arrow pointing to it like yeah you're definitely checking that out 100 percent immediately <laughs> Um, Scott, and you set me up brilliantly uh, because our You're next uh, movie is actually the uh, the other great Aldous Hodge movie from this year. Uh, your number six, One Night in Miami. Yeah, this is the one I was most offended that there wasn't anyone else's list uh, in my top ten. Probably I was. I was. I would. No, no, no. I, I understand, and I was just genuinely shocked this wasn't on um, some, someone else's top ten list because I watched this movie. I watched this movie. I guess this is probably is this the most this, this probably is the most recent ad in my top ten. I guess of, of the year. And I don't know, I was just blown away by, by this. Um, you know, I liked Ma Rainey's Black Bottom a lot. I think this is probably the most comparable to it in that it is clearly an adaptation of a play, which I saw in negative reviews from critics. <laughs> and like for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, I didn't really understand why it was a negative. Uh, Kent Powers is, uh, r- writes the script here. Regina, uh, Regina King, I almost said Regina George. It's exactly what I did in the podcast last week too. <laughs> it is, <you> know. <laughs> Regina King uh, is directing, and Kim Powers. I mean, what a year, right? I mean, he he wrote and co-directed Soul uh, as well for Pixar, and along with Pete Doctor, and then doing writing the script for this. I mean, it's, he adapted it from his own play, and it's the sort of fictional retelling of this real life night in Miami between four monumental figures of the 1960s, especially for you know black culture. Uh, Malcolm X, Cassius Clay, uh, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown. And I think that, you know, you mentioned it earlier, Scott, when you were talking about in your top 20 with Kingsley Benadir and Leslie Odom Jr., who are Malcolm X and Sam Cooke, respectively, being standouts for you. But I really think that, like, all four of these guys, you know, really are worthy of consideration for awards. Now, would I nominate all four of them for in the five spots for the Oscar? Like, no, I probably wouldn't. But I think that, for, that all four of them deserve to be in the conversation and the other two, you know, being Aldous Hodge and Eli Gorey, who are wonderful. You know, it's not a super adventurous, like, first outing from, you know, Regina King when you're adapting something like this with pretty limited uh, confines. But I think what she is able to make of that adaptation of the script and the the way she uses the camera to follow some of these guys around, around the hotel room that they're in and the different, you know, the, the brief excursions they go on outside of the hotel room really works for me. Uh, I think the, the script is really powerful. Uh, something that I also, you know, thought about soul from Kent powers. I think he's a really good writer and I'm, you know, 
I don't know. I was like, I, I feel like I, I, I feel like I hesitate to like really jump into it just because we just talked about this in the podcast last week. But uh, I mean, like the, the acting is phenomenal. I think the conversations I have feel like, look, if you don't put a year on this and you don't like set it with context, like feels like somebody, a conversation that could be happening in a hotel room today, which, you know, is simultaneously, you know, astounding and also horrifying probably. But so it goes, I guess, in, in America in 2020, but yeah, really remarkable film. It's, you know, Amazon Prime's really easy to watch. It's the first movie on Amazon Prime that I've ever seen. It has a banner on Amazon.com's homepage, which I think is saying something probably. I don't know. But uh, really cool that they're pushing it. And I feel like more people are going to come to it just because of that, right? Like people who have Amazon Prime for the two-day shipping, right? And aren't hitting it up for, you know, it's movies and TV shows. Or maybe they only care about Marvelous Mrs. Maisel or something like that um, on their TV program. And, you know, they get introduced to this. I think that that's you know, maybe I'm being optimistic and hopeful, but I'm really looking forward to what Regina King does next you know, behind the camera. I think that her next outing will probably be more telling for her as a director than this one, but she did a really good job. And uh, the acting performances, I don't, I mean, I don't have any complaints at all. I think they're all really, really strong. Yeah. Like Scott said, I kind of just gave my thoughts about this one on the podcast last week, why I really like it. So Paul and Aaron, I take it. You guys have seen this one. Yeah, this is definitely an actor's debut. I think that it's smart for her to lean into her strengths, which is like understanding performance and getting performance out of people. That's clearly the strength of this movie. I think um, I really love the Eli Gorey performance. Cause I think it's a, almost more difficult because he doesn't have as much to play as someone like Kingsley Benadir does. Um, and I think his, his charisma is so effortless, but I do think that Kingsley Benadir has such an amount to overcome because not only is Malcolm X such an important big public figure that there are so many videos and, and photos of, and, you know, recordings of speaking, but also, obviously the iconic Denzel performance, you have to sort of play against that. And I think he plays the more inner um, considered parts of Malcolm in a way that I think Denzel didn't necessarily um, lean into, you know, the spike and Denzel collab, like that's going to be a naturally different thing. Um, I do think that it, it didn't feel as cinematic as I would have liked. And I think that's the, the stage thing is like, it just didn't have the scope and it didn't have like the sort of justification for this being a movie almost like I want, I just feel like watching a play of this is almost the same exact thing. And like, that's what some people want, obviously. But to me, like there are some limitations in terms of visual scope and, you know, it's fictionalized. And I think that there's, there's opportunities to make this a little more mobile, a little more kinetic. And I, I think that's the one thing it kind of lacked is a little bit of cinematic energy. Um, but I think the performance is really strong. I love the conversations, obviously the way it ends, which is like, you know, one of the best scenes of the year, kind of hard to go wrong with like one of the greatest songs ever written, I think. Yeah. And like different performing it. Like, I think there's no way that wouldn't be like good at the very least, but there's this overtone of like, you know, what happens after this movie ends. And if you know anything about right. these women's lives, yeah. two of these men are dead within a year. Um, yeah. And that, like, it's, it, it's one of those crazy things of like, it. it's a specter hanging over the movie that like gives it sort of more of a um, emotional quality. It's like, this is, you know, sort of their last gasp at, making change that, that they think can actually affect their people. Yeah. I was kind of saying the same thing last week that, that, that I think the song takes on an added poignancy when you think about, you know, that they immediately give you that postscript that these two men were killed after, because right. It's, it's kind of a hopeful song of like change is coming, right. Uh, things are going to get better. And, you know, we can debate about how bet how much better things have gotten. They have gotten a little bit better. Um, and, but the thing, the fact is that those two men were not around to see the change come, right? Like they, they were dead a year later. Uh, and so I think that adds something in addition to what Paul is saying of like, yeah, it's one of the greatest songs ever. You have an incredible singer and in Leslie Odom performing it. Um, 
I think that's one of the things that makes it so special. Aaron, your thoughts on this movie? Yeah, um, I, I did like it. I just didn't love the actual movie. And it was definitely the outside aspects of the movie that I felt were most impactful. And so I tried to separate those when judging the movie itself. No, but like it is an effective use of, you know, the real life story and everything. And it was just like weird. I couldn't get a random movie by Nicholas Roeg insignificance out of my head the entire time watching it, which is about Joe DiMaggio, Marilyn Monroe, Einstein, and one other person meeting, uh, I think Richard Nixon or another uh, politician meeting in a hotel room one night. And it was just like, it really was a weird version of that. And this was, and like, so I just, that's my own personal viewing thing, but I just couldn't get that on my head, like a hypothetical viewing meeting of four people. And I just wish it would have went a little bit more outside of the bounds I expected it to do. But I guess, you know, I just, I thought, I think it could have went a little weirder, I guess, as if that makes any sense. It was a little bit too contained for a story where it was already taking liberties of, you know, making this in a world you know i know what you're saying we needed some possessor like scenes where malcolm x and and, uh sam cook are fighting for denzel trying to play trying to play malcolm x (laughs) exactly i think that's so interesting though because like i guess to bring in my black bottom to the question like i like the i guess that the script and dialogue here felt like so much more natural right like felt so much more conversational um than like the very sort of like monologue, you know, almost like set piece monologue heavy nature of Mara. August August Wilson style in general. Yeah, sure. Right. Right. Like, and I think that, I don't know, I guess you, you could probably go either way, I suppose with it. But for me, the sort of the, the more natural feel feels less like a play, right? Like feels less, um, like it feels more, and a cinematic is probably not the right word, but feels more, you know, made for, for a movie than something like, um, something like that. But I like both films and, um, yeah, I hear what you guys yeah, are saying. It's a good choice. I just felt like before they got to the hotel room, it was like kind of a lot of like, let's get to the hotel room. No, but- I, I so I 100% agree with that. I mean, that was the, I mean, I talked to, I guess I talked, I don't remember if I talked about this last week or not, but like if you take the first, if you condense the first half hour for me into, into like 10 or 15 minutes, then it, this is probably my, my favorite movie of the year. It's probably five, like the only five movie I would have given five stars to this year, but. Um, I do think that it's really drawn out in the first half hour, kind of unnecessarily. Yeah, so that's just a little, little, little sp- stuff that kept it out, but I still yeah. definitely expect it. All right, we're going to Paul now for his final outlier pick. Uh, and you know, you're riffing on it today with your name here on StreamYard, which no one else can really see. But uh, <laughs> the documentary, Dick Johnson is Dead. Uh, talk more about this one. Yeah, so every year there's sort of one big documentary, I think, that really hits for me. And this year, this was the one that really stood out the most. Um, you know, this is Kirsten Johnson's follow-up to her, her film Camera Person, which I think is like one of the most marvelous achievements in, in editing and in documentary film of, of the 2010s. And this is a story about her and her father sort of grappling with his his incoming death. And it's, you know, them revisiting scenes from their past, creating, you know, ridiculous scenarios of, of him dying and stuff like that. And I think like more than anything, it's an opportunity for a mother, or sorry, for a, a daughter and a father to connect and to reflect on their life and to really like let their feelings out and let that all stuff be, be soul born. And I just think that that's, it's such a moving, um, a moving experience. I think that there's certain scenes, there's a scene at like a funeral that happens in here that I think like is one of the like most touched I've been by a movie this year. 
Um, and I think it just gets to the heart of their relationship in such a great way. Dick Johnson's such a likable dude also. Like he's just someone you really love to watch on screen. And um, there's all these small moments too, where he's like, you know, he's tracing his hand along the outside of their house where, you know, for what could be some of the last times that he's in their childhood home. And I, you know, I, I think this really made me appreciate the value of life and sort of um, our time together in the way that, you know, we can recognize people and, and express our love for them while they are still around. And I love that idea of, you know, giving someone flowers while they can still smell them, I guess is the saying. But um, all that stuff to say is just, I was so moved by this. And like some of, you know, the recreation stuff's a little goofy, but I think when it really gets to the heart of the subject matter here, it's it's heartbreaking, but it's beautiful at the same time. Um, and you see sort of a little bit of previews of this, honestly, in her, her last movie where you sort of see her dad in the periphery. And um, yeah, I love the way this movie ends too. It's, it's a little, it subverts, I think, what you're sort of expecting it to go, the direction you're expecting it to go. And I think that like, it all just comes together really well. And again, just a, a beautiful ode to the relationship between these two, two family members. Yeah, I haven't seen this one. I know it's great, um, but it just, the concept of it makes it sound like a little bit of a downer. And I know that- It's really not. It's really not. I, I that's, know, and that's what everyone's saying. I just like, I have to work up the, you know, be in the right mood to watch it, whatever. Uh, you know, that old cliche, that old chestnut. But um, Aaron or Scott, have you guys seen this one? Uh, yeah, I really, really love this one. Um, this is probably my favorite documentary of the year. I forgot to put it on my list here. Um, it probably would have been in my top 20, though. Um, it's really, really quite life affirming, actually. Um, and it's just, and it definitely is not in this dour, dark, morbid sort of way. I thought it was a really beautiful ode and I appreciated kind of the tonal shifts into kind of quirkiness. I think that was really authentic. And, uh, again, it, any relationship with a father is I've, I've got weaknesses for those because, uh, yeah, just my own upbringing, I think, but either way, I think it's really done in a beautiful way here. And, uh, yeah, I I recommend it. It's it is my favorite documentary of the year too, and not enough good documentaries this year. But this was good. Disagree. Disagree. I have two in my top ten, so <laughs> but we just haven't gotten there yet. But uh, yeah, I, I know that there's some others I need to check out as well. The Truffle Hunters is another one that I've heard really good things about. But, oh, there's a moment uh, with with chocolate cake in Dick Johnson's Dead with a moment with the chocolate cake and a person who makes it and is like that is one of the great moments I think from cinema in 2020 for me. Yeah, this is near the top of my list for ones to see. Is it better than the uh, cake uh, cake shop scene in Borat? <laughs> so weirdly, it it's similar to a different scene in Borat, which you'll see when when you do watch Dick Johnson instead. Oh, but okay. it, it shares a lot of similarity to one of the moments in that movie. I hope it's not similar to the cake shop scene in Borat. <laughs> uh, okay, we have two movies left for our outlier section here. Aaron, uh, we're going to you for one of the most divisive movies of 2020. Uh, Wonder Woman 1984. Young Woman. No, but it is a movie that has woman in the title. Promising Young Woman, uh, a movie which has Charlie XCX in the soundtrack and Stars Are Blind by Paris Hilton, and yet somehow I'm not sold on it. Um, Aaron, yeah. your thoughts on it, though? It's your number six. Uh, yeah. Uh, at, uh, Emerald Fennell, uh, her directorial debut, and... If nothing else, it is a bold uh, debut. Uh, and I appreciate the swings that it takes in this movie. I don't want to really get into super spoilers, but overall, I just really, I thought uh, the music used throughout, it's like 
the first time where I really feel just throughout the music, it's like, ah, this is the music I grew up with. Like, oh, here's this, here's the, and like, it was just like funny to hear like a toxic orchestra, like in the middle. And like, it's like, I'm like, man, I'm really getting old. Cause I'm like, this song's like a classic now. And it's just like, I remember when it came, it's just like, there, it just fully had me connected. And I have never seen new girl. So I don't understand like the casting choices, like, I don't really care of that that guy's like a nice guy and the Max Greenfeld guy. Max Greenfeld, I, know, uh, I know him from Hello, My Name is Doris. That's where I, I know, know him from uh, Veronica Mars, where he's also a nice guy. But like either way, it's like, yes, on the surface, it's the nice guy, you know, the nice guys get it taken to them by a woman. But it's so much more than that also. And I feel the concept she takes to a lot of different places and the decisions made towards the end of the movie. Um, I don't agree with all of them. And uh, I ended up really coming to appreciate that actually, just because I think this could have been a very easy movie to make in a certain way. And it did feel like just kind of a throwback to like just seventies exploitation, like miss 45, uh, which I saw for the first time this year. And it just did uh, something different than just making a 2020 version of a story that's already been told. So um, I think that Carrie Mulligan definitely is one of the best performances of the year um, also. And just overall, uh, I am excited to see what Emerald does next. I think that she has my full attention, regardless of what she does next. I'm excited. Yeah, man, this was such a frustrating movie. For I think I think it's better that we stay out of spoilers. <laughs> like well, we can't even really have a conversation about it, to be honest, with, with that. Well, we can, we can, we can do our best, but we're going to go on for an hour if we get right. into spoilers is the issue. And I, I, What's I, Scott and I, I did actually, the other day. <laughs> I, well, yeah, I went back on my uh, letterbox this past week and I edited my initial review at just to like sort of dump all the thoughts that I've been having. But it's, it's frustrating because this movie is so watchable. It's so bold. Like you said it, I mean, I was just hooked the entire time really. Um, but yeah, I just don't think it goes anywhere in the end. I, I, really don't like the choices, the directorial choices. I, I, again, I can't say that much more. Well, um, I think it goes somewhere, Scott. You just didn't like where it went. And then you didn't agree. Yeah, with yeah. well, I, I think that it tries to have its cake and eat it too in a way that isn't particularly satisfying. Um, okay. But I, I think that, you know, you're mentioning it as like a play on 70s exploitation. I wanted it to be more of that in the end. Like that's kind of one of the reasons why I don't necessarily like where it goes in the end, because I just think that, uh, it, 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 the end it left me a little bit questioning the point, I guess. And I do get the nice guys thing. Yeah. But I don't consider that to be a super groundbreaking revelation. What is sort of the thing, what she reveals about them in this movie. But I do think Bo Burnham is the best part of this movie. Um, I think his performance is, is excellent. Um, and, uh, I think he was a great choice for this role as like the prototypical nice guy right who like Bo Burnham yeah. can do no wrong with me they so yeah for me brief spoiler alert uh they 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 forecast where this character is going too heavy-handedly for me but I think that um him he, he does like the absolute best that anyone could possibly do I think of selling you on making you believe that he is actually who he says he is but all right spoiler warning over um uh other thoughts on this movie? Uh, again, I don't want to go too far down this road because I yeah. Uh, I, uh, I mean, it's not lost on me that the thing the world in 2021 needs the most is four bros on a podcast talking about promising sure. young women. Um, <laughs> you know, I mostly what I have to say about this is 
read Mary Beth McAndrews on Roger Ebert, read Candace Frederick on L, and read Emily Vanderwerf on Vox. Those are much more thoughtful, I think, like really meaningful explorations of what the movie is about. And I think from women, the perspective of women, which is like, I think honestly more valuable in this case. Um, I think the casting is really smart. The way that they use people like Adam Brody, people like Max Greenfield, people like Bo Burnham. Um, it's really smart. As a lot of people who know me probably know, Carrie Mulligan is my favorite working actress. So it like breaks my heart that this wasn't something that I, I necessarily connected to in the same way that I wanted to. Um, I do think that it's caught between sort of two poles. And I think in some ways it's satisfying a lot of itches, I think. And in some ways um, it doesn't commit necessarily to some of its ideas the way that I think I would have liked it to. Um, and again, I love something that's a swing like this. So I, I really am glad that this exists and that I saw this and that this was released and everything. Um, for me, it didn't connect in that same way. I do think that the nice guys thing is skewered in a way that's much different than I think a lot of movies do. I think it's way more direct and in your face about it, which I appreciated. Um, but I do think that some of the ways that the characters go and like the Alison Brie stuff, I don't love what the Ooh, movie's doing yeah. like that. Alfred, um, the Alfred Molina stuff was a big no for me. I can't believe I'm saying that, that anything involving Alfred Molina is a no. But if you want to watch the better Carrie Mulligan, Alfred Molina movie, and education is great. <laughs> I have complicated feelings about that as well, but really. I think that Carrie Mulligan is is amazing in this still, You know, regardless of what you think. And I think the direction in this is really good. You know, I think the main problem is just the, the, um, the ways the script goes, but I think in terms of like actual filmmaking, this is one of the better debuts, I think, in the last couple of years. Um, yeah, it just gets a little lost in its own plot, I think, and not plot in the literal sense, but I think it loses the plot in terms of where its themes go. And um, yeah, I don't know. Again, I, I don't really have conclusive, definitive thoughts. I just saw this for the first time a little, like, little less than a week ago. So I'm still kind of formulating how I feel about it and how I feel, you know, not super important necessarily. But um, yeah, it's a movie that I'm glad exists, but I, I didn't love. Scott? Yeah, it's a movie that was in my top 30, I'd say. I think that I'd kind of echo some of the sentiments that have already been said around it's really bold, right? Like, I don't, as, I don't know, as maybe, Scott, you said, like, it doesn't really feel like it goes anywhere. Like, I, I yeah, I kind of I kind of feel like the opposite, where it takes a huge swing, it goes somewhere, and, like, how much you feel like that resonates or speaks to you, I mean, speaks to you probably isn't the right, the right way to put it, but, like, how much that resonates with you as an effective place to go is is up for debate. For me, I, I had mixed feelings about it. I think some parts of it I really liked. Um, some parts of it, I think that it, it could have been better served just like chopping off five minutes of the movie and ending the movie at, after a certain point. Um, and I think that would have been just, you know, even more effective for, for me. But that's obviously, I, I would definitely retweet what Paul was saying around there are a lot more eloquent people who have a lot more relevant perspectives on this film than, than me, uh, even though I, I do have a lot of thoughts about it. But most of those are spoiler heavy and would Probably, yeah, involve about an hour's worth of discussion since we didn't talk about this on the podcast. We did a good job, guys. We kept it we kept it concise, and uh, we didn't go too far into film bro territory, so shout out <laughs> to all of us. Uh, all right, our, speaking of film bro, our last movie... Uh, Isn't this the opposite of film bro? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> our last movie uh, for this episode, we're going to go to Scott for his number three choice. And Scott, all I have for you is a gesture and a word. Yeah, oh. uh, and that word is tenant. And yeah, look, it's because the Christopher Nolan movie, it's, you know, it was my most anticipated of the year. I, my, one of my favorite experiences uh, leading up to this movie, 
before I saw it was going like watching this guy's video explaining why he thought this movie was going to be a sequel to Inception, which is just like a hilarious video to watch uh, about like how he thought that like why this movie was so expensive is because they're just not telling you that Leonardo DiCaprio and like uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt are going to be in this movie like halfway through, which I thought was hilarious, especially after watching the movie. But I'm really I'm really glad with, with what this movie ended up at. So I, I, I definitely don't think it, it's a perfect film, but I'm not at all surprised that I'm the only I mean, I know it was Aaron's number 20 and. Uh, I know I don't know how Paul feels about it, I guess, but I know Scott enjoyed the film and, and liked it, uh, even though it didn't make a list. But uh, yeah, it's just it felt like I mean, that was like the, that that was such a great return to theaters, the the brief return to theaters that I had this year, uh, getting to watch this movie a handful of times uh, on the I was like the, Tom Cruise. Here we are back at the movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I saw this. I saw this movie five times, if I'm being honest. Um, I saw this movie five times in, in IMAX and. I'm fortunate enough in Boston to actually have like the second largest IMAX screen in the country um, and getting to see it a bunch of times on that screen was really awesome. And I don't, I don't know what Aaron's Aaron's saying, but uh, yeah, I think that I, like, I just really enjoyed this. I think that I've read a lot of complaints about this movie around like John David Washington and him being a very cold uh, protagonist. I, I like John David Washington in this film. Yeah. I thought he's, he's not the best part of the movie for me, but I thought he was really good. I thought he was really likable, and you know, even if he was "quote unquote" cold, like I, I don't know, like no, no one says that about. Does anyone say that about James Bond? I don't, I don't know. I feel like it's like a similar, it's a similar persona. Ultimately, it feels like the sort of like spy esque type. Um, I mean, assassin's probably like too strong of a word, but that that kind of that kind of vibe, and I think he plays it really well. I think Robert Pattinson is a nice foil to that around this person who you think is sort of this. I don't know, like sidekick who doesn't really know everything that's going on, but that's not the whole story uh, as as things unfold. And then <laughs> I, Elizabeth Debicki is, you know, one of one of my favorite um, actresses in Hollywood, and I, I think she really makes everything she can out of out of this character. I don't think it's the best written character, and you can go listen to our our Nolan countdown to understand our thoughts on Nolan's female characters over the course of his filmmaking. But uh, I do think that Elizabeth Debicki is fantastic in this movie and look, the action, the idea around it, I've, I kind of haven't even talked about, I guess like the, the Chris Nolan of it all yet, but the Chris Nolan of it all for me really works. And I know that it doesn't always, it didn't always, it didn't work for like everyone who was a big Nolan fan. I was glad to hear that Aaron, uh, you know, it was one of his favorite Nolan movies. It's definitely in the top half pretty comfortably for me. I really enjoyed it. And like I think a couple different people here have said about different films that they've seen this year, like it really feels like it was exactly, you know, the one thing maybe that I was missing from like cinema this year was a big blockbuster like Tenet. And I was really happy with what Tenet was and how it was able to fill that gap uh, in the year. And, a year, and, you know, in a year where you usually have 10 or 15 of those, right, minimum, uh, it, it filled the gap and it was pretty much the only one. Yeah, look, I'd like to clown on Scott for, for, for you know, seeing this movie five times, whatever, for putting it near the top of his Nolan rankings, but it's a good movie. Uh, it, it is. Uh, and I go back and forth on it a little bit. Like when I saw it in theaters, I really liked it because I saw it in theaters. Right. And it, just, it had just been so long since we'd seen anything like that in theaters. Um, after I sat with it a little bit more, it didn't stay with me. I kind of flip flopped uh, on it. Now I appreciate, again, I, I like the movie. I appreciate it. I think it accomplishes what it set out, sets out to do, which is to be a, goofy spy movie, right? That's not the type of Nolan film that I like the most, which is why it's not in my top 20, even though it's close. Um, but I think it accomplishes, you know, what it sets out to do. Like I said, um, it's just funny to me that this movie contains the line, uh, don't try to understand it, feel it. 
because there's not that much to feel in this movie. Like I feel like that would work so much better in other Nolan movies, particularly my favorite, which is Interstellar. Right, like that is the last part of Interstellar. Is not is that is like the embodiment of that because I love that sentiment. Right, I love the sentiment of don't try to understand it, just feel it. Uh, and I, that's what that's I want for sure to about Interstellar. But that's what I want to try to say to people who uh, you know are like, well, how could he go through a black hole and come out the other side or whatever? Don't try to understand it. Just Scott's still litigating um, this from uh, our Nolan countdown series. Uh, but anyway, Tenet is really good. And I think Nolan knows that he's making a big, dumb uh, spy movie. And that's why he put Kenneth Branagh in it to do a Russian accent. Uh, because you know what you're you know what you're doing when you put Kenneth Branagh in your movie to do a Russian accent. And it's not to make some sort of serious, big issue movie. So credit to him for that. And credit to Elizabeth Debicki for being as tall as ever. I think it's a different type of feel. That's the thing. I think the feel it is more of like this ethereal quality because this is Nolan that is most elemental. You know, this is not about plotting mechanics or, or character motivations. This is a movie about sort of like the visceral experience of this ride. And I think that's why this is so satisfying for me. Like, you know, it's not in my top 20, but like this is a movie that um, I really appreciate. I think I'll come back to quite a bit and it's, you know, it's a movie I, I, you know, loved watching it again with subtitles, you know, most recently. It was nice to be able to understand what's going on. Um, but you're not I, supposed I'm, to. I'm going I'm to get temporal pincer move tattooed on my forearm. <laughs> One of my favorite phrases to just hear Aaron Taylor Johnson say over and over again. Um, I won't necessarily spoil it, but I think, like, this kind of a hilarious way to interpret the, the revelation at the end of the movie. Like, um, what, you know what the, what the real tenant was. I'll, I'll just hint at that, but the friends um, we made along the way. Right? I mean, quite literally the friends we made along the way. And I think like, you know, it is like him being silly and goofy and like almost skewering himself and not taking himself too seriously. Like as much as it does have this, you know, sort of mumbo jumbo, um, you know, time travel mechanics, kind of weirdness going on. It's not that really expecting awful. you to understand that stuff. And it's like yeah. the staging of that stuff is brilliant. And I still like, the way they did some of the fight choreography is still amazing to me and kind of blows yeah. my mind. I think John David Washington rules in this thing. Like, I think the biggest thing his character needs is that physicality. And I think he brings that, um, that scene in the kitchen where like, Oh my gosh, just, yeah. you can just tell that other actors who did not play in the NFL would not be moving their body the way that he moves his body and like his mobility and his physicality is like just unmatched. I think with almost any, any big actor. And I think that's something I hope he leans into in his career. Cause I think that's something he does so well. And yeah, this is just a super great movie. The the Ludwig score is like oh amazing. Gosh, yeah. This I is like one of the movies that. I saw in theaters. Like, um, you know, I was the only one in the theater here. Luckily, like they'd opened this old repertory theater after our main one closed down, and I saw this twice. And um, it was just one of those things where it just it kind of overtakes you. And I think it's a movie that like I think I'll, I'll gain more as as time goes on. And it's just a fun hang. It's it's not anything too complex. It doesn't necessarily move me. Um, I thought it was just super fun and a, and a great ride. And it transported me somewhere um, in a time where it was tough for movies to do that. I think sometimes in 2020, but I think it did that. Yeah. And I said this on the podcast at the time, but I had the weird theater experience too. And that the first time I went to see the movie, uh, oh, the projector blew up with 45 minutes left in the movie. At, actually at one of the most crucial scenes when he, when they go back to the Freeport um, and they could not fix it in time for the next screening. So they told us all to come back, come home or go home and come back the next day. And I just ended up coming back to watch the whole movie. Um, 
the next day. And yeah, I'm glad it did because you understand stuff better the second time as much as you can understand what's going on in this movie. But uh, that was just kind of a, a crazy thing that happened. Uh, Aaron, you talked about it earlier. Anything else you want to add regarding Tenet? Um, yeah, the reason I liked it is because Christopher Nolan finally wasn't trying to develop emotional like character develop. Like that's the part of Christopher Nolan that for me does not work is like his character work. It's so like with this is just fully diving into the concept and like when he's like, don't, don't try to figure out, just feel it. I feel like it's like, he means like feeling like that kind of confusion and you know, the, just all of that and more than from an emotional and like, I just had a great time with the ride of this movie um, I thought it was really, really shot well. And I love the score also by Ludwig yeah. for sure. Like I just, and it's a fun movie to rewatch. Like I haven't gotten to five rewatches, but like <laughs> I can see how someone could do that pretty easily. And if I had access to my, well, I was doing the number one because DC has the largest IMAX screen at the National Air and Space Museum. So yeah, right, yeah. all of the Star Wars movies that the new Star Wars movies at, but um wasn't able to see Tenet there, unfortunately. Otherwise, I would have seen it a few times. But yeah. I think that, I think Tenet's a movie that when theaters open back up, we'll get back into theaters. I think we'll find a way to have some sort of like engagement in theaters, and I would sign up to go there right away. Yeah, I mean, Chris Nolan would probably fly across the country and hold a gun to theater owners' heads to get them to show it again in theaters, probably. But yeah, I mean, going back to the the Ludwig Göransson of it all, I mean, like, guy, the score is just amazing. I don't know, I. I, maybe I'm a sucker just because it's it's a Nolan film and it is my number three movie of the year. But like, I got to know the score is just so so good. Um, I, tried, I was the first one ready to shit on Tenet. Like I love <laughs> shitting on Nolan. Like it's so much fun. But yeah, I, it, I, it's fun. And then I saw a lot of Nolan fans didn't. So I'm like, okay, well I guess well, I'm not a Nolan fan. <laughs> it's a it's a blast. And in the opening scene at the opera house in mm-hmm. Ukraine, yeah. I mean, when when the bass drops in the opening scene, like it's just. I don't know. That's that's my that's my that's my movie moment of 2020. Honestly, guys, yeah. that's my movie. Moment Nolan guy can make an opening scene. I, I'm starting to and, think make an opening. And he usually does endings very well too. That's something we uh, found out on our when we did our series. Again, go back and listen to our countdown series on Nolan. Yeah, I set up for a segue into the ending of this part of the episode. Yes, it is. Uh, man, we're just segues all over the place today. It's like Weird Al's music. You're like video. Paul Bart Malkoff. <laughs> we, we, we went for the same joke, but opposite references. Um, all right, that'll do it for uh, part one of this uh, tw- Best of 2020 Countdown of Something Like It, Scott. Next time, we will be back for our consensus picks and our number one films of 2020, so you're not going to want to miss that. Of course, uh, like, rate, review, subscribe, do all the things you do on your preferred podcast apps, and Come back next time. Thanks to Paul and Aaron for being here. Uh, we'll, we'll get to our consensus and uh, number ones next time. Uh, but until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time.